Let's face it, people have different sleep needs. While you love your partner, sleeping next to them might not always be the most comfortable. Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs, so you can choose what's right for each of you whenever you like. Maybe you prefer a firmer mattress and your partner needs something softer. Because of the individualized comfort that you get from Sleep Number Smart Beds, you and your partner will sleep better together. All Sleep Number Smart Beds feature cooling, pressure-relieving comfort layers for soothing sleep throughout the night. And their temperature balancing bedding is designed to move heat and moisture away when you're hot. When you're cool, they hold their energy to help warm you. The smart beds even automatically respond and adjust to your movements so you sleep comfortably all night long. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards only at a sleep number store or sleepnumber.com what makes a life a good one is it the adventure you have or the friends you find along the way maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect defend and save what you believe in every single day so what makes a life a good one In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Welcome to episode 332 with my guest Ben Turner. We're going to talk about the stress of being a classical musician. Uh, Support for today's episode comes from the Scott Allen Turner Show. Scott is the financial rock star who went from a money moron at age 22 to a successful self-made man with financial independence years later by using the same ideas that he shares on his show. He'll help you get out of debt faster, save more money, and reach your financial goals. You can get his best-selling book on audiobook for free by visiting scottallenturner.com slash happy. I'm Paul Gilmartin. This is the Mental Illness Happy Hour, a place for honesty about all the battles in our heads from medically diagnosed conditions, past traumas, and sexual dysfunction to everyday compulsive negative thinking. This show is not meant to be a substitute for professional mental counseling. I'm not a therapist. It's not a doctor's office. It's more like a waiting room that doesn't suck. The website for this show is mentalpod.com. Go there, check it out, fill out a survey. Maybe we'll read your survey on the uh, on the podcast. Um, they're completely anonymous. We don't even get your IP address. So share. We want you to share everything that you are comfortable sharing. And it's a big part of the show. Those of you that are new to it, about half of this show is the interview with the guest and the other half of the show is um, me reading people's uh, divulging their inner lives through the uh, through the surveys um, it has been a tough week since um, since the last I talked to you it's been about um, I think about 10 days since Herbert uh, Herbert died 
and um, it's gotten a tiny bit easier, but it's still really fucking hard. You know, those of you that are really big dog lovers um, who have lost a pet know know what it's uh, what it's like, and it's just like every little thing reminds you of something that you're never going to have again. The, the, the first thought that occurred to me, you know, because the way, as I shared last week, I found out was I was on the plane home from overseas, and I like to make it sound like I was uh, on military duty. Um, I got the news, and so I had hadn't seen Herbert in like three weeks, and we did. it was not something that was expected. He was towards the end of his life, but it was not something we expected that we would see like a slow, visible decline and be prepared for it. So when my wife told me through uh, text and I saw it on the plane, the first feeling that hit me was that I didn't get to say goodbye like I did with our previous dog, Charlie, who died in, uh, actually we put down in, in 03. And as painful as that was, there was still some type of closure by being able to kiss her face and, you know, the last minutes and, and be prepared for it. But the, the feeling that I've been battling with Herbert is that I didn't get that chance to it sounds so stupid, but to tell him I loved him one more time and to kiss his face. And I know to him, I was honestly probably just a vending machine for treats, but let me have my fantasy. Um, it, <coughs> George Carlin used to do a bit about how when you're eating a bag of cookies, sometimes you'll think there's one more cookie left and then you realize you've eaten the last cookie and you don't get to savor that last cookie, that's what it feels like with Herbert, but time's about a, a million. And uh, <clears throat> we've got a call from the vet that his ashes are, uh, are ready. And that's just such a... It's so weird to go from this animal that is such a big part of your life with such a distinct personality that you talk about every day, that you see almost every day, that makes you feel something so strong emotionally to, um, you know, his ashes are ready to be picked up. It's just so weird. It's so weird. But thankfully, um, my... Uh, I don't know if I call her wife or ex-wife. Uh, we're going to a mediator um, tomorrow to work out the details of our of our divorce. And I guess it's a lot. It's it's a lot emotionally to be going through these two things at the same time. And if it wasn't for my support groups, meditation, and all that other stuff that I do, I don't I don't know what what I would be like. I can't even imagine if I wasn't sober what it, what it would be like going through these things. But um, the kindness of the emails that you guys have sent and posted on Facebook and stuff like that um, has been really, really touching. And I, have, I haven't posted anything about Herbert um, um, on Facebook. I don't know. That just feels, I don't know. 
Um, but as I did mention to the people who are monthly donors, I did, I did post on the Patreon site, um, a little tribute, a video tribute to, uh, to Herbert. It's about five minutes long. And, uh, but that's only for Patreon. Um, there's no way on PayPal to give monthly donors little freebies like that. Anyway, this is an email I want to read. Um, this was filled out by uh, Maria Cisneros. And uh, somebody had mentioned in a previous episode um, that they aren't, aren't we enabling people by uh, not rigorously defining what is PTSD. Um, this, this person who had written was, you know, trying to put forward the idea that, you know, we're letting too many people in the door just because they say they have PTSD. And I got this email in, re- in response to that from Maria Cisneros, and I just love it. She writes, I just heard episode 327, and I had to stop and write to you When a woman wrote an email in regards to PTSD, I'm a patient with depression, generalized anxiety disorder with panic and PTSD. Interestingly enough, I was part of a team of neuroscientists at the National Depression Center at University of Michigan, Ann Arbor, who published a scientific article article about PTSD. I ran the study and was very involved, so I have a bit of knowledge about PTSD. First of all, PTSD, as the name entails, is trauma-based. Who determines trauma? The person suffering or struggling with it. Trauma can't be defined, not even by scientists researching this um, by an outsider. PTSD is diagnosed when any trauma interferes with a patient's ability to cope with life. I am terribly enraged at that woman's comment. Although she definitely has the right to have an opinion, where her opinion is not warranted, it's not relevant. When she states that, quote, we need to define certain traumas that may seem more trivial from the outside, the ones that decide whether it's trauma is the person that went through it. For research and diagnostic purposes of patients other than herself, her opinion of what she considers should be trauma or not is irrelevant. The reason why right now we don't subcategorize or categorize PTSD for so many cases is because it meets criteria established by professionals and researchers who created guidelines such as the DSM in the USA and the ICD for the rest of the world. Sorry for the rant, but that's my two cents. Thank you for um, so uh, beautifully um, putting into words what I think so many of us wanted to rebut with. Um, And as you guys know, uh, BetterHelp is uh, an online uh, counseling service that uh, I personally use. They're a sponsor of the show. And I got an email from Bree and uh, a woman named Brie, and no, I got an email from the cheese, Brie, and uh, and I asked her if I could read this on air, and uh, she said I could, so uh, she wrote, I wanted to thank you um, 
I started using BetterHelp. I didn't mesh well with the first counselor I was matched with, but asking for a different counselor on their site is easy and discreet. The second therapist I was matched with has been working really well. I love the idea of BetterHelp because half of my struggle of going to therapy is finding someone affordable, close to home, making the time to go there, and that they are a therapist that meshes well with your needs. With BetterHelp, the phone call sessions are amazing because I was even able to have a session on a stressful travel week. It means that that if and when I move, I don't need to go through the struggle of finding another therapist and catching them up to speed of where I'm at. I don't think I would have found better help if it weren't for your podcast. Thank you so much for that. And um, those of you that are interested in checking out uh, BetterHelp, it's, um, and you can do it uh, either through... Um, uh, messages with them. You can do it through phone. You can do it through uh, face-to-face video. Um, so, it, or all of the above. Uh, and the uh, website to do it is BetterHelp.com/mental. And make sure you go to that one because otherwise they won't know you're a listener. And um, it's important that they know you're coming from having heard it on the podcast because then they'll continue to um, sponsor the show. So it's betterhelp.com slash mental. Uh, fill out a questionnaire. They'll match you up with a uh, betterhelp.com counselor. And then you can experience a free week of counseling to see if online counseling is right for you. And you got to be over 18. And then finally, I want to read this uh, little awful moment filled out by a woman who calls herself living the dream. And she writes, dad calls and says, I found a piece of paper that has your name, then R-A-I-N-N dot org, but I don't know what that means. I say, it's for the Rape and Incest National Network. That website has a lot of good articles I asked you guys to read. I gave that website to you last October when we talked. Silence. You know, about what happened to me as a kid. Dad says, oh yeah, I think we looked at it then. So did you see what's happening in China with those dogs? I'm so scared of being alive and so scared of dying. I was so, so lonely, but I couldn't bear being around people, and it hurt. I've just been, like, very interested in dicks. I don't know how to let loose and just be. All my alters have different handwriting and different... Extremely anxious. Affects. I am most turned on when I am in fear. My first thought was I'm about to die. Stomach clutching despair. Ocean of sadness. I came out over the phone to them. I put myself on the Akinzai in fourth grade. They told me I was wrong. The secrecy is what kills us. And I just sat there and cried on his shoulder. And it was the first time I ever felt safe, like a weight lifted off of me. In order to get rid of your anger, you have to learn how to cry. I started liking myself for the first time. I'm afraid that people are only nice to me because they're afraid I'll kill myself if they're not. Oh, that's fantastic. (laughs) That is fantastic. (laughs) I'm here with Ben Turner. Uh, We're in Berlin, but you're an Aussie, and Mm -hmm. you are a classical musician. Yes. And we've had many requests to talk about the pressures of the classical music world. And... um, I'm so glad that you got a got a hold of me, and and we were able to bond over schnitzel tonight, which was really well. You had sausages and a one pretzel. of the best ways to bond. Yeah, if it's a, <laughs> it is. I I had to cut the conversation off when we were having dinner because I wanted to save 
a lot of it for us talking right now. Mm-hmm. There's so I have so many questions. Um, let's let's talk about your childhood a little bit before we get to the all the metal pressures of of classical music and doing it professionally and all mm-hmm. of that stuff. And um, you were raised in what part of Australia? In Melbourne. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And uh, yeah, well, I guess growing up in Australia is always a. Um, Oh, it's an interesting experience having lived here now for a little while because you just get to see it in a bit of a different light. Not, for, not that I've been here for that long, but you, you maybe look back uh, on the differences here compared to the differences there. And In the musical world or just in general? In general, in general, I think. Growing up in particular, um, you know, growing up as a kid in Australia, we have such a focus on, like, on, on you know, it's, it's a sporty kind of country, so there's always a bit of chat about... Uh, you know, when you're just in general growing up as a young kid, like, oh, what sport are you playing? What are, what are you doing this? And that seems to be a bit of the, uh, I think, the the dialogue. I mean, that's the, I think one of my, my, I guess, concerns with Australia at the moment if for kids growing up is that it really the, you, you only ever really talk about either buying a house because property is pretty expensive in Australia at the moment or um, you just talk about the football or whatever sport's going on during that week, you know. So it was a very superficial upbringing I think I had and I grew up in a in a household that would be um, emotionally barren I think it was a lot of emotions that I felt were not necessarily validated in a whole bunch of different situations but I link it back to talking about sport because I think that's probably part of the reason how I got into into playing trombone so I think that's pretty important to talk about so uh, I yeah I played um, I played yeah I played a lot of sport in sort of my between the ages of you know like 8 to 18 I was a lot of um, Australian football which I'm not sure if you've seen what it is it's a bizarre every, every time I talk to somebody who's not from Australia it's, a, it's always a bit of a strange like explanation of how do I explain what it is like the combination of like oh yeah it's like volleyball with like kind of like a gridiron or but like uh, without the pads but more volleyball, volleyball yeah so like always this weird trying to explain what it is and I played a lot of cricket and um, but uh, and I think I was I think I got into these sports I think a lot of because a lot of the reason was because my uh, my dad was like a state level track sprinter so he was Mm. very sort of big on you know, and played a lot of football as well. So he was, you know, oh, you got to get, got to get into the sport. You got to, you know, got to play a lot of football because that's so a you big felt, thing. You definitely yeah. felt pressure there. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And um, it wasn't that I didn't like playing sport. I meant there were a lot of moments where I think I really, you know, there was a lot of a lot of so happy moments within it. But I felt a lot. I think especially playing something like cricket, I've never ever felt so nervous. That was probably one of the first. Uh, Memories I can, I can remember of extreme anxiety about going out to bat, you know, and then facing someone who's about to throw like a just like a, a rock hard uh, brick at your head. Dude, I had the same yeah. thing playing. I hated batting. Yeah, I hate. I loved fielding. Yeah, I hated batting. Yeah, yeah, and um, and this was I, I just I just remember at the time never being able to work out like why am I so nervous? Is this something that like it's just I couldn't put my finger on it and I think I remember vaguely bringing it up to my parents and I was like oh, I just get freaking out about this whole thing and I think I had similar feelings with football but that's a bit different but this situation of just being like you're someone's about to throw a ball at you like and you're the one there facing it so how somebody do you- who's not really good at it yeah <laughs> 
And is just hitting puberty and getting muscles. Yeah. yeah, yeah. It was a really bizarre experience to try and process, you know, at that age. But look, um, I had a childhood that wasn't like overly traumatic per se, but, you know, there, there were situations where I felt a lot of numbness or just that I, uh, that it wasn't so much a, uh, we, a status quo was always sort of something that was more uh, appropriate in, in my family. And um, so... So it was with, more of an absence of something yeah. than trauma. Yeah, exactly right. And I think as I, at the same time I had, I, 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 it's kind of funny how I got into trauma because I guess at the same time I just, I sort of fell into it by um, sort of following a friend into like, oh, I really want, like they wanted to play trumpet. So like, oh, I want to play trumpet too. And there were too many in the school band. So like they're, they're going to put you on trombone instead. So I said, yeah, okay, whatever. So a lot of people get into trombone to just get girls off their back. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. And uh, yeah. <laughs> Usually because uh, you end up, uh, like, poking them in the face with the back of the trombone, so. Um, <laughs> but um, the, so it was at that time when I started, it was very something that was, it was in the background of, I think, sport was sort of the primary focus for me um, in sort of early high school, um, middle high school. And uh, over time, I, I, I found that, yeah, sport wasn't for me. Doing something sort of longer term, sport related, really wasn't going to be for me. And I sort of, that sort of started to drop away. And I really wanted to just quit. So I just, I wanna, I, I just don't want to do this anymore. And um, so I remember, uh, and at the same time, it was sort of an inverse uh, like correlation of that I started to be a little bit more involved with playing trauma in the school bands and stuff like that. And, um, um, I remember doing lots of different trips with the school bands and stuff, and I always had lots of fun with that. And um, so, but I think I remember at that time, as the sport sort of dropped away, I think I was, I was just desperately seeking some sort of identity because all the kids around me were all to, like, you know, focusing on football or focusing on this or academic stuff or whatever. And the school I went to was probably more of a, a sporty academic kind of school. So it was if you weren't doing one of those two things or had your eye on one of those two things, what are you doing? Mm. So at the time, I think it was more of a, how I became sort of more connected to playing trombone in a more serious way was that this is, I need to find some sort of identity. It was like a desperation of like, what am I going to do if like, cause I, you know, like the, 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 I think I sort of, I think I felt sort of parental pressure immediately, like mm-hmm. at 14, 15, 16 about what are you going to do as a career? What's your career plans? You know, which I think as, as someone who had, had previously not been able to express a lot of emotion before like well how do i how do i put that out into words that i can uh, put to yeah how do i process that you know so, i had to yeah so would it be fair to, to say then that in your family it was assumed mm. that you should always be moving towards something mm. and not being still yeah yeah it was a very much a future a projecting the future kind of wow uh, that'll yeah. do a number on a kid yeah yeah absolutely and it was something that I I was always projecting so far ahead as in like, well, uh, you know, where you start to fantasize about like, well, what is it going to be? Escape fantasies of what your career is going to be like. Oh, yeah, that's what it's going to be like in 10 years time, 20 years time or something like that. So you'd have these weird, um, yeah, I guess dreams of what you think you could do with whatever, with playing music or sport. And... So, uh, I guess by about sort of 17, 18, I think that was at a time where I thought, look, this is going, this trauma thing is going okay. Like I sort of was still trying to work out, well, what, I mean, I, I think generally a lot of people get into 
playing I, well initially it's probably important to point out that I, I actually didn't actually get into playing classical music until I went to college or like our first year of university I was I sort of started playing jazz primarily first and um, did you have any favorite trombone players when you when oh, you started yeah I, mean, I would imagine of... Dixieland is hugely like the root of yeah uh, a lot of uh, yeah I mean well, the... people that are into jazz and play trumpet or am i just yeah i mean well it just depends on what you're what you're into there's so many different corners of it but i mean i listen to lots of people like irby green and tommy dorsey and which are famous mm-hmm. sort of jazz trombone names if um anybody's aware of them but um yeah that was sort of i think these were those were the people that sort of initially piqued my interest about that that mm-hmm. sound i think i'm yeah. someone who's particularly interested in sound as a whole so that i think it wasn't just about oh like oh like this piece of music or whatever mm-hmm. i really there was something in the sound and i think that's also what then ended up bringing me to uh bass trombone so i specifically play bass trombone what drew you specifically to that though versus the higher registered yeah, trombone yeah i liked there was something about the lower the, the gravity depth. yeah yeah yep. i don't know like it's there's something about the depth and the you the like warmth. making people's balls rumble yeah <laughs> the brown note as yeah. it were um and uh so yeah i i um uh i had quite and that probably around about sort of the 17 18 age i had quite a lot of success at competitions with it as well so mm. sort of solo competitions and mm. uh, things where i had a um let's just say certain school competitions that sort of featured different people whatever um i had a lot of success with and and sort of i don't know it gave me i guess that situation of um big fish in a small pond type mm-hmm. sort of thing so you're thinking oh, okay now this is this is the thing i've been looking for this is the identity this is the one and, and how, how hold that thought how was it received at home when you would win these yeah well this is interesting because uh, i think that it was like ah good now, that's the career now now you're onto something and uh because i this uh i'm not from a musical family at all so there were no there's nobody in my family i have quite a small family but like mm. nobody in my family has had any mm. experience in in the entertainment or music industry one of them had a radio though yep. correct yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. So you had a foot in the business yeah, yeah yeah there was a speaker in the house one speaker <laughs> and um but i think it was, and I think a lot of what um, my the things that I deal with have a lot to do with having uh, trying to find people who just understand what's going on or find similar people who like just just get it, you know. Mm-hmm. And um, so I think that was something when uh, that I was after sort of maybe having success with these sort of things. Maybe I was looking for more validation. I was all, and I think that sort of pushed me into their reaction. Maybe. I was looking for some sort of sense of constant gratification. Will there be more yeah. of this? Will there be more of this? If because, I keep practicing. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, yeah. And so from that, you begin to get obsessed with that. Oh, this is that success I've been looking for, and this is where the where it's it's going to be and you know and this is where i'm going to go i'm going to do these concerts and stuff like that i'm going to go study music yeah i'm going to go study the blowing down the tube yeah mm-hmm. and like <laughs> which when you put it that way is it's just yeah i don't know but it's what, uh yeah what percentage of people who do classical music professionally or at least semi-professionally um do you think got into it because of a just flat out love of music or the instrument versus people where that was put into their 
life by a parent who just believed the kids always need to be doing something and always achieving something? That's a very good question. Um, uh, less, less than 20, 20 to 30%, I reckon. I think there's, I, I, look, I, it's really hard to, to, to put a finger on it, but I really think in, a, in the Australian education system as well, unfortunately, it, it does have its issues with how music is introduced because I think mm-hmm. obviously it's a great thing, but it's like it's how you introduce it in a way that's not academically approached academically. So, you're, okay, now you've got to do this exam and now you've got to do this which, exam. Which is the worst yeah. way to do it. Yeah, yeah. And I think, unfortunately, that's like almost the only system that I guess non-musical parents identify with if they have their kids in a music program at a school. And I also, we'll get to this later, but I also was teaching music after I finished studying. And that was also just sort of realizing how this system works as a teacher and then having, not being able to show that lack of, that show that creativity for the students when the parents are asking you, so when are the next, when's the next exam for the, so they're coming at it from a position of Mm -hmm. assessments and all this sort of stuff without the, what, what, what music do you actually like to listen to? What do you like to play, you know? And I think that's something that is really, I think, around the world, you know, for music education is is really such a big problem because I think there are so many people getting into it for the wrong reasons or parents who are pushing their their kids into it for the wrong reason that it's they've heard so much about how great it is for the math skills and all that sort of stuff that, that, that you know, that it's, um, that it's really... And, yeah, I, I, yeah. I'll talk about this a little later, but with how you know, because the the schools are trying to make a buck from the you know uh, from the the parents about because they want to expand their music program, so they don't really care how mm-hmm. how the kids get into the music program as long as the music program is making money and so on. For but, every parent that pushes a kid into classical music, mm-hmm. uh, one therapist finds a profession. Yeah, so it's it's actually a beautiful thing. Yeah, yeah, it's, yeah. It's just a they're like a, seeds, yeah. just <laughs> dropping and growing new therapists. Absolutely, yeah. I can imagine. Yeah, yeah. and so uh, I yeah I think in at, towards the end of yeah high school I was I was thinking well this is it this is going to be the thing I'm going to go study music where can I go in Australia where that's going to be the was best there place? was there a sense of connection to mm. pieces of music where you would feel you know moved or you know there there uh the, the guitarist Dwayne Allman used to say um you you know that something is worth working on more you know when you're working on a riff or something mm. when you get chicken skin you know mm. what i mean yep yeah yeah and mm. would would you ever have moments like that with a piece of music where where you really felt inspiration you felt connected to the piece of music and or your instrument or was it always i'm pushing towards the goal of working in an orchestra and having visibility and success yeah that's a good question because i think a lot of the music and actually this is a bit of a problem with classical music is that to to maybe understand the feelings that you're supposed to have when you're listening to the music oh you apparently have had to read some description before you listen to it and here lies the problem with because i the as an audience goer the audience doesn't like to be told how to listen to something and that's a bit of a problem with a lot of classical music because like yes um there there are some composers who write music that you something might click with you that is i really like the a chord or some some sort of playing that uh, uh, that really appeals but 
uh, a lot of it implies that you oh you have to have some sort of if you don't understand what's really good do you get this piece do you understand what this is trying to, to convey you know all that sort of wankery that that yeah. is a little it's um but i think that at the time i guess of that time about sort of 16 17 18 i think that i think coming back to that sound thing it wasn't necessarily a piece of music for me that actually ended up me sort of getting into it it was more just like there was something about the energy and the about the, yeah, yeah. Uh, the energy and the sound that really sort of drew me rather than just like, oh, because, you know, like, you know, you don't want to have like, because I think a lot of the, um, oh, you hear prodigy childs that have like, oh, he just heard Bach for the first time. And he's just, he, ever since he, he's, I, he's locked pre- in for life. Yeah. The pretense yeah. <laughs> that you must have to wade through. Yeah. I, 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 must be mind blowing. Yeah, yeah, and that's that's also a bit of a, a um, I guess a, um, a miss. Uh, like, well, what do they, they, a lot of people assume? Like, do you only listen to classical music, or do you only like? Absolutely not. Like, I I can't not just listen. To, if I just listen to classical music, I mean, it's just like you know, it would be just like me, um, me working at a um, a newspaper and only reading the news that newspaper of the of the yeah. of that of that newspaper. Like, you just yeah, you just it just doesn't work like that. And so, yeah, I, I think there are there are a lot of yeah misunderstandings, I guess, about why people get into classical mm-hmm. music. So, um, was also a part of the attraction being a part of a larger machine and being able to feel and sense your part in carrying a counter melody or opening up the sonic space by carrying the bottom end or however you would phrase it yeah yeah well i don't well i guess i play an instrument that doesn't necessarily have a lot of melody to play so Mm -hmm. um which can always be a bit interesting because you're Mm -hmm. just trying to i guess you know if you're someone who's really trying to find your voice with music then you know if you you know 10 years down the track if you realize you haven't picked the right instrument you know you can't just go oh well i guess i'll start this one out like you you it's a little bit of a you know you've got to lock yourself in for a little while um, but yeah, I think it's, I, I do really like the teamwork of it. And I think that's something mm-hmm. that's moved on from the sports side of things mm-hmm. as well. I think that an orchestra is a team at the end of the day. And I don't just play in orchestras, I play in smaller things as well, but like you have to be a part of the team mm-hmm. for it to work. So yeah, it's a real, uh, I guess that's an, uh, um, something that drew me to this like this living and breathing thing that is an orchestra because there are so many parts to it and everybody's there trying to put it together and not make it sound like um like surgery or something like that you know so it's just it's a really interesting like just a mechanism of how it all comes together but to not make it sound like a mechanism that to yeah what uh, what would make a bass trombonist um the best or you know stand out would it is there a tone or a timber that they can get from their instrument um or is it uh the volume the the what 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 goes into that yeah well i think it's a bit of a paradox because i think the the goal is is that you're not trying to sound like a bass drum owner so there's this sort of like you want to sound not like a a a piece of plumbing but you want to sound like something like the the yes you are playing a piece of plumbing but you want to sound like a violinist or a a cellist so so it's really like a, a conceptual thing of that you're you're going a little bit beyond the piece of tubing in your hand you know, in your, yeah so like how you can so it might depend yeah. on the piece of music that you yeah. want where you're going to fit yeah. in for that per- 
that yeah. passage. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So I think, yeah, I mean, a lot of it comes down to deciding what kind of sound you want to make and how, what, and that, as then associating that sound with, well, how am I, does, how does that make me a musician then mm-hmm. as well? So like, but this also then leads into, well, then does that sound and this uh, musicianship also then make my entire identity? Is that who I am just as a person in, mm-hmm. entirely? Like, so inevitably, if some, if I fuck up or if I have some sort of failure, does that mean I also be, maybe um, am not worthy to do anything anymore mm-hmm. now, you know? so I don't want to get pigeonholed as the guy yeah. that sounds like a fart underwater. Yeah, yeah, and I've had plenty of farts underwater. <laughs> so, and, um, and I think that's something, just, just going back to this nervousness as well, you know, that like performing in front of thousands of people you know like at the at the opera house in sydney or something like this um and you're playing something very exposed or like some sort of solo thing like that and then this app this crazy mind battle of not you're holding a tube in your hand you've got to convince thousands of people in front of you that you're not just about to make a a fart sound and then walk (laughs) off a stage and they've just paid a hundred bucks to see you play that fart sound through so it's um yeah and it, it and there i've 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 shanked the shit out of some notes in front of people and to just, the point where you think they noticed oh yeah but it's just this this re i just some of the react i look back at some of the reactions this uh, of this overthinking and just I, I the when i've been lost in thought after some of these situations and over time I've gotten better to deal with it but like mm-hmm. it was when I was studying and uh, you know a few years back and then just fucking something up in front of people who apparently mean something um, mm-hmm. for your career and then it just, I just you, you finish the concert you get through it and you, you, you have to get out of there can't look at anybody in the eye I can't look mm-hmm. anybody in the eye it's the worst getting the fuck out of there and well then, I don't know yeah. about playing music yeah. <laughs> when you have a bad comedy show yeah. I call it the hoop skirt where nobody yeah. comes within you like within a six foot diameter yeah. uh, and they pretend that they don't know that you're there. So yeah. none of you have to recognize the shit yeah. that you just filled the room oh. with. Yeah. And um, yeah. And then you, you just don't know how to, you, you go home and then, you know, you're like, oh, uh, I'm just going to get into bed. I'm just going to go to bed. And then you're just you're replaying that one <laughs> fuck up in your head all night long. One little split fart sound. And yeah. Oh. And um yeah, it's a re- it can be a real mind battle, and they're, they're now like with the conductor yeah. look at you when when that happens. I've had some funny looks. Yeah, <laughs> so uh, yeah. other musicians have you? Had oh other yeah, musicians? yeah. And the th- they probably is, find it funny though. But th- yeah, this is it. This is it. Like I think this is the problem. I guess where um, a lot of people just push it down. It's like it didn't happen. Move on, and then like that nobody wants to talk about it. So if you if you go to a, a colleague and ask. Like, so tell me about some of the gigs you've done before. Like, oh yeah, they actually went okay. They're all cool. Yeah, they won't mention the the, the disastrous clangor that somebody's <laughs> played. And um, and I look, yeah, I, and some of those clangors have been sort of under different circumstances, circumstances which I'll talk about. Mm-hmm. But I guess this whole idea of overthinking a lot of the result afterwards mm-hmm. and before, because just waiting for that, like and playing bass trombone there's a lot of counting bars rest so you know if which is always a bit funny in an orchestra where you've got a violinist who's got about six million notes and they're sitting away grinding away and you get paid not the not the concert master but you get paid around about the same per the same as they do and i've got about six notes left (laughs) to their to their six million so 
So if you mess up one, probably you won't. Oh yeah, yeah. So the pressure is on. The pressure is on. Oh my god! I'm, I I have to so, go to the bathroom just hearing that. Yeah, yeah. So you know, it's a real you know, and just some very interesting pieces of music where you've just got all these bars rest in symphonies, and you've just got two notes at the end or something like that, and then like in a movement, and it's just it. It, it's fun. I guess that's that's the funny thing about classical music, where you know a tri- the triangle player at the back's got right. a one ting at the back, and that's right. it. So, um, but I think for me, I, it's I just developed this this uh, people pleasing mentality. I have to please everybody sitting around me, the colleagues around me, or teachers, because if I don't, if I don't please them, they're like, oh, where's my worth? Yeah, yeah. What am I doing here? You know. And to go to, so when I finished high school, going to, I moved to Sydney to study because at the time I think that was um, where one of the best teachers were was. And then like, that was a good place to, I, at the time, I think throughout sort of those latter years of high school, I think it was sort of like or pushing down a whole lot of depression that was covered up by, or covered up by a level of anxiety that was driving me to practice trombone to, mm. to pursue trombone related stuff. So, um, that I didn't really realize until quite a bit later on, but the, uh, going to Sydney and studying music full time in a music school, and we mentioned this earlier about like the some of the parallels I find with something like Whiplash, the movie Whiplash, and mm-hmm. that even it, yes, it does have a bit of a Hollywood twist to it, but th- there are there are some real elements in that to um, the power that a music teacher has because if you study a music degree, um, a performance music degree, most of the direction is with just one other teacher and just you. So it's a one-on-one type experience. Most of the course. Yeah, most of the course with other things. On and some it's more, subjective. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, so you're, you have this one person who is theoretically directing you th- for your career. Like, this is what you've got to do and this is what, and it might, this is what I say. This, what I say is, uh, has to be right. You've got to follow what I say. And that you you start to qu- question, or you have to you start to question. Well, what like do, is everything they say correct? Am I, like about everything about life or whatever? Like are they some sort of they put on a pedestal above everybody else or you know? And studying, yeah, these music schools as well. There are some very interesting social situations as well. Everybody's there because they obviously think the music is bigger than them. Otherwise, they mm. wouldn't be there doing it to that level and uh so you the the obsession that goes with trying to please trying to please your teacher please the other musicians so maybe they'll you'll form a group or something like that uh it you and just the hours that you spend in a practice room by yourself to try and get better and better and better and prepare for the next audition here the next audition there and but i found that just that isolation of practice meant that you maybe you didn't necessarily um, have the time with other people to really talk about stuff at all, like I have proper conversations. So, um, yeah, which led to, I think for me, having some really sort of bizarre like social situations, whether it be like things like relationships initially where like just, just the out level of unconsciousness that I had in a relation, a long, long-term-ish relationship that I had mm was in um 
while I was studying that just just the stupid things that I would do um, while stuck in the grip of the obsession of practicing the music. So just sort of taking out shit uh, on the girl I was going out with and stuff like that. Just like where you, just that you're, you're um, taken over by that sort of love of the music and that you're like, whatever you're, you know, like you just, you're, you're blocking out the rest of the world. And then just, um, and then you can also justify it mm. as, you're, you don't want me to succeed in my career. Mm. You can't. You probably can't see that you. They're they're just trying to get you to have some balance in your life. Yeah. But you think that they're, I don't know, jealous of your success or they don't want you to be successful, and you probably can't even see that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And it's just so. There are so many musicians I know who are just lost in in the grip of the music and and just just the, this obsession for a better gig so even ones uh, even musicians who are already in a position maybe somewhere where they're uh they would be i would people would kill for some of the gigs that these mm-hmm. particular musicians are getting but they it's still not enough it's never enough and yeah. that's also the mentality i guess with pursuing a classical music career is that it should never really be enough that you're always looking for that next level up mm-hmm. the next level up and next level up and it just keeps going going and that now i, yeah. I if i can just interject I I would agree if if you're talking about trying to improve your technique mm. and be more at in, you know connected to music mm. but in terms of the results yep. of the work that you're doing and trying to achieve um, that I, to me is where the sickness comes in Correct. Is, yeah yeah that's right and you're just looking for just the the recognition you're like i right, can't wait to see right. people look the and you know look what i did look what i got it look i, I just got this position mm-hmm. in this thing or this thing you know and um i think the first uh my first feeling about that look something is a bit strange about how um the what the norm was for uh, student classical musicians um was when I just some of the uh, it's very common I guess when you're a student you do a lot of these sort of orchestra tours and orchestra camps and things mm-hmm. like that and um, and doing some of these orchestra tours and camps where there was just this just uh, immense alcoholism just a really really uh, uh, intense drinking this is in Australia so mm-hmm. yes we have it all have you know drinking problems mm-hmm. no uh, mm-hmm. but we it's um, I, I I remember a situation where uh, so uh, so usually you would have like before you go to a rehearsal you were preparing a program for one week and you'd have a rehearsal in the morning and being brass nerds you'd have like a warm up in the morning and do kind of bra- like nerdy things that you would mm-hmm. do when you play trombone before you actually play the rehearsal and I remember just the I remember just some of the because we were all staying together uh, in different uh, like a complex of apartment flats where you would all stay together and then go down to the rehearsals that it was very very common just to have drinks after rehearsals the night before or whatever and then and you're roughly how old uh, this would be you know uh, between the ages of like 18 to 22 23 okay. yeah right. so college age okay. yeah and um, but I remember just the uh, 
just having these just just horrendous nights on the drink, just really just sucking the cans dry, and then just realizing that uh, the next morning, um, uh, going down to the warm ups in the morning, and you're carrying a trombone down to the to the warm ups, and you meet the the teacher who's taking the the, the, the warm ups mm. of the morning. And I remember pulling out. I had about like two hours sleep, just rolled out of bed, go, mm. going down there. And I couldn't make a set. My lips were so I was I was like so uh, dry and swollen from the night before. I couldn't make a sound on the mouthpiece <laughs> amongst the other trombonists who were there. So there was only like there was only two other trombonists there. So it was just like a bit of a trombone warm up, and I couldn't get a sound out because I was still hung over as fuck from the night before, from the three hours before. And then just sort of, sin- and then just this dread of like, just doom of like, what am I doing? Like, because they're a well-respected teacher sitting in front of you, just like, yeah. like you know, who is you know a mentor figure, and just sitting there. I just remember sitting there, just thinking like, and just I I, I could not work out like, why did I do? Why am I doing this? And then. Uh, having to uh, just power through and this was in the summer a lot of these things happen in the summer Mm -hmm. the tours and and camps and it just being really really fucking hot and then you're just dehydrated and you've you've barely slept getting through a rehearsal and all that sort of stuff and you're just sitting there like it just like the 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 world's ended while you're Mm -hmm. like you're just rethinking every life choice you've made while needing to go to the bathroom every hour to sort that out and uh, but and it was it's fair, yeah. fair, fair to say that a lot of the other people mm. also kind of in that same boat with you hung over yeah yeah and it was just something about well, why are we doing it like what, what's the point because um and i guess the initial social interactions that we couldn't talk to each other at all like unless mm-hmm. we sort of um had a few drinks like uh, not everybody but like we'd finish a rehearsal now we'll go to the pub and then we'll talk and then exactly yeah it wasn't a yeah so you had this very sort of strange uh social um vibe of like well i don't know if really we're any, we're talking about anything here and then when we are it's because we're we've got big big goggles on you know so yeah. it's just a um yeah it just many situations of of bizarre sort of um yeah nights where things were um you know lots of just like I, I this was also something that ended up leading into things like relationships where um i just working out like what what is actually a, a, like a real relationship with someone else when you're um just having such rampant nights uh like uh just just drinking so much around all these different other people because i found like there's there's quite a lot of like um promiscuity um uh, mm. on these types of camps and stuff as well so there was just a lot of um which uh, which would be something you you just have to just think oh yeah well you know uh, we're band nerds so it just it never happens right you know so there was just sort of the stereotype that you know like oh this is all cool right because it doesn't happen um, but but I think uh, it really sort of screwed up my ability to have a, a sort of a, maybe a proper relationship or talk through or, or communicate in in a relationship because I I, I think at the time I was um, this obsession with either the music and then the subsequent party after the music would uh, really override anything else and then um, the uh, in this I guess it took that that relationship 
ending in a pretty sort of dramatic way in that um, I had like, it was like a long distance relationship as well. Mm -hmm. So that was also something where, you know, I, I, I wove that into me being stuck in my head about mm -hmm. thinking about performances and practicing mm -hmm. that being neurotic in a relationship and then sort of pointing everything on, on, on her rather mm -hmm. than addressing any of the own, my own uh, issues was something that was the, it was the easy way out for me. And then when, when the relationship ended, did somebody hit a triangle? Yeah. <laughs> And applause. <laughs> and, um, yeah, and that was a real, this was towards the end of the, the studying experience, but just that was a real wake-up call as to well, what have I really been doing in four years of music study with, with my ability to communicate with other people. And then that was a, a point in time where I, I, I really started to look about, um, well, how do I, how is this pursuit of a music career, how does it? Is it really worth uh, ruining lots of friendships and relationships, or to to achieve what? Like, what are, what am I getting out of it? Yes, some sort of overseas career or whatever or anything like that. And that was where I, I was just when that relationship ended. I just I, I had no idea what to do. Just I I this is I was still in Sydney. I um, I just couldn't get out of bed. I was in a, basically in the fetal position. Um, uh, of my house trying to work out how to proceed I could like that was and at the time realizing that oh I'm actually quite I was quite codependent that was sort of that was sort of what was keeping me um, going and that I hadn't really yeah I hadn't really um, en encountered or uh, addressed any of the things that I was actually dealing with or any of the issues that I had would it be fair to say at this point in your life you didn't even really know what it is that you liked Correct. Yeah. Yeah. That it was all like, I, I think it was all a bit of a should. Yeah. Like here's what I should be doing. Yeah. Yeah. And this comes back, I guess, to the, the whole teacher, the, the, the one professor or teacher that you have that is telling you, this is what you should be going for. This right. is your, this is, this is the career that you should be looking after. And for anybody that doesn't know what the Australian orchestra world is like, it's such a small world. So, um, there are basically seven or eight orchestras in Australia that, and if you play something where there's only one in an orchestra, if you play bass trombone or something like this, um, you there are eight jobs in the whole country for what you do, and that's it. Wow! And which are pretty much all full at the moment. So you know you. And then, how many bass yeah. trombonists would there be that you would be competing for these eight? Yeah. Well, that's actually gigs. the interesting thing to know. Um, is during while I was still in Australia, there have only been two auditions for positions the whole time that I was actually around playing in a more serious sense. Which was how long? Uh, well, this was from I guess from the time of eighteen till when I left. So about five years of being, yeah, I guess professional. Two auditions playing. in five years. Yes, two auditions in is five it years. Fair to say, <laughs> at that rehearsal hall, there was diarrhea. Oh, but just people who anybody who'd ever just picked up a bass trombone was just there because they're like, you know, why not? So, yeah, why not? And um, but just this, yeah, um, it's fear, absolute fear that, <sighs> yeah. And then also putting so much weight on the outcome as it like, if I could only get this position, then everything would be good. Like then, then I'd be able to relax. Yeah, then I can live. Now I can live. Now I can start my life after mm -hmm. the 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 long quest is over. For you know, like I, I, like what my friend Joey said to me when I showed him a picture of me on the summit of a mountain. He mm -hmm. said, 
And when Paul got up there, did he find Daddy's love? Yeah. <laughs> uh, and and it's it's also fair to say that um, if you took a poll of a lot of orchestral musicians around the world, a lot of them, they're, they're, it's not the happiest career in the world as well. Like orchestra, yes. or, orchestras are not for every classical musician as well. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, what else would they do? I mean, other than a yeah. quartet or yeah, so chamber music, you play okay. smaller things. And um, and teaching and uh, which um, I had a dip into teaching mm-hmm. and um, uh, realized at the time I probably wasn't uh, a good mix to be a teacher then. Mm-hmm. Like I have so much respect for teachers because I had a lot of great teachers mm-hmm. growing up. Um, but I, I realized in a city like Sydney that is so expensive to live in at the moment, mm-hmm. you have a lot of. Uh, music students who who are finishing their degrees and then just they they maybe they want to do a lot of performing but they're getting into teaching for the wrong reasons they're doing it because they I need see. to pay bills and they're not it's not because they have a hundred percent passion for teaching music mm-hmm. it's because they just that's you have a music degree um, yeah you can do that and I think sometimes the best information though is passed along by mm-hmm. people semi interested mm-hmm. in what they're doing yeah. <laughs> That's right. Absolutely. Looking out the window while they give you important, yeah, yeah. important information. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And so, yeah, this was an interesting time. I, I guess this whole relationship breakdown was the first situation where I realized I needed to talk to somebody. I needed to get help. I needed to work out because I look, I couldn't, I couldn't talk. I hadn't talked about emotions with my parents. You know, I didn't feel like I could bring it to the the foreground and the weight of just so the amount that i had pushed down deep deep down that was this this one situation had had just sort of opened the floodgates to oh uh, maybe i'm not the person i thought i thought i was um and that was when i i I started talking with a therapist and, and said look um have you ever talked with a trombonist before? And she's like, no. And uh, <laughs> it's always the first time. And um, but uh, yeah, being able to realize that, like the because I think initially this um, growing up in some in somewhere that is so well, what I thought was, well, I should probably just keep keep my parents happy or just just keep the status mm-hmm. quo, just you know, soothe the parents, soothe the parents is going to be fine. Was the way to go, and then realizing that being able to uh, uh, just say what I'm feeling to somebody else and have somebody listen or just actually have somebody listen to you was so important it was just like and just just share the the mistakes that I've made or all that sort of stuff and this um, it was just I, I it was just the first time I think that I because I don't think I'd ever actually had a proper conversation about mental health or mental illness at all with anybody uh, on a an in-depth conversation mm-hmm. so because i guess in australia like it, the, the dialogue is better but it, it's still a little bit like the english like stiff upper lip kind of thing mm-hmm. more or less like it's better but it's it um it's still got a long it's still got a long way to go with the with the with the types of conversations that people are having particularly in, in mm-hmm. the arts do you do you recall the vibe of that therapist and as you opened up, what you were saying and what it felt like. 
yeah, well, it was just like a. Uh, it, it's it's going to be okay. Like you can, it was just so so like a. I'm not being judged. There's no no judgment about what I'm saying, and that it was like a that it was just someone who it is like you could see it in their eyes. It was something about their eyes. It's really hard to sort of put a word to it, but it was just something about the way in which they were sitting and listening, um, without it being so like a okay. Now you got to do this and tell me to do this. It wasn't such a directional was it, thing. Was it more like they gave you an mm. additional perspective mm. on the importance of these failures or successes that you thought were life and death? Absolutely, yeah. I think it was just that my mind, like being able to work out that my mind wasn't the fact about like it wasn't. Right. This wasn't the fact. Like I, this, this success that you're looking forward mm-hmm. to is really not what is not is going to give you um, some sort of perfect life, or yeah. all the mistakes that you've made aren't going to determine the the shit life right. that you've had. It seems like in the absence of having mm-hmm. conversations about emotions with kids, th- their default is to grow up into adults who extrapolate and exaggerate into the future Mm. and rarely with it being anything that is moderate it's Mm. either grandiosity or abject failure yeah Mm. yeah absolutely and um I think this was something with the the colleagues of that I that I was working with, or like they were also sort of feeding um, the uh, like you've got this audition coming up. How are you feeling about this audition that's coming up? And they, they'd know when they were the, the other auditions mm-hmm. were coming up. And you being able to be aware of the way that they were talking to you, and then the, it wasn't all about them. And 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 this sort of leads to the amount of narcissism in classical music, I guess. What, what, what yeah. you back up and uh, yeah. I didn't really understand what you oh. said when they're asking uh, how is something going? Yeah, okay, other so, musicians would be saying to yeah. you, you know, you gearing up for this audition. Yeah, yeah. So sorry, I what I meant to say here is that so generally, if you're doing, if you're working in in a city on a freelance basis, the you're working in a professional orchestra, but you don't have the full time position, the full job. You're replacing somebody for I one see. gig or one program, and so you would have the time with the people who are the full time members. Um, of the orchestra and who would also know when um, specific jobs are coming up or auditions and they would know about it and they would ask you how's your preparation going for it even though this preparation like this might be six months away or a year away and you're like that job's coming up in in melbourne do you know about it like yeah like in 12 months yeah (laughs) so it's do do you feel like that's coming from a place of uh not altruistic or yeah well i think or it's just the, like that's their the best kind of s- small talk they can do or what what what's their intent do you yeah. think is it is their intent good well i think there is quite a bit of an age gap i guess mm-hmm. and so i'm not sure whether or not it was a generational thing i guess mm-hmm. with like well we've got our jobs when are you when are you going to mm-hmm. get your you know and i think this is something where i yeah, as we said, um, talking about looking for that Mount Everest moment in a career where a lot of these particular musicians who had gotten the jobs, who had gotten those jobs specifically because they had looked for the Mount Everest moment. Mm-hmm. And that had worked for them, so you need to 
imitate the, our what we did and in order to have some sort of career and you know so that I think it was the way they knew uh, about employment you know as an orchestral musician in Australia specifically but that was the way they knew to, to discuss those things you know and some it wasn't everybody obviously mm-hmm. but it was something that really you know somebody would say that like just it just took one person to say that to you and you were thinking you're just worried about well how do I what's what's my plan what's the plan for the future does anybody ever go up to that person with the ideal career and say are you fulfilled <laughs> has has ha, are you now more calm mm. has your mind yeah. Is it your mind now rested that you're in this position? Yeah, I'd really love to know that because I think always at the time in Sydney in particular, I was I would th- I was always thinking I can't ask this question because I won't ever get booked for a gig again or uh, or yeah. this person would be insulted. Yeah. Yes. Like yeah. like they would think it's a backhanded way of shitting on them. Yeah. Correct. Yeah. So that was always on my mind and I think yeah, the 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 amount of overthinking that we go into these situations about um, how do I talk to the... Uh, because I think it was just putting these people on pedestals that nec- yeah. they were just humans too. They have they also have an asshole. Like, they still have a... They function as humans, so they're, yeah. does, they're not special, mm-hmm. you know. So... But their assholes have a really tight armature. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Tension is Is that just, the right word, armature? Yes, yeah. <laughs> Got to get rid of the tension. Um, yeah, so... Uh, yeah, it was... It was something that uh, after I, well, finishing um, my studies, I then got, was just starting to get sucked into a fear um, uh, black hole. Like, what am I going to do? Cause I, because I think the... the like, if this doesn't work yeah. out, I put all my eggs in this yeah. basket, I'm fucked. Yeah, yeah. And I think the, um, the, the music school as a whole is such a bubble. It's, the, it's especially classical, oh, it's, it's classical music. So, it, like, the musicians there are only really thinking about classical music. So, you get outside, and you're like, oh, real world, right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, okay, that's the thing, isn't it? And realizing that oh okay i can't this something i'm gonna have to work out something here to uh, you know because and then feeling like maybe um i've been sold a bit of a lie in the music school of like the your chances of of what you can really have as a have have as a career um because i think at the end of the day colleges and universities are businesses they make money and um and i remember having a discussion with um a one of the um a French horn player in Australia about the sort of the ethical um, uh, process of students applying to music schools because and being you, realistic, yeah, with them. right. Because when you look at a website for a music school, any music school, whether it be like Juilliard, anywhere around the world in Sydney, the pictures on that of that on that website are of students playing in orchestras. It's just mm. orchestras, orchestras, or, students playing their instrument. So naturally, you apply for the course and you think, oh, yeah, okay, yeah. Nobody tells you um, that realistically in Australia, I don't know what the figures are in other countries, but at any one time, there are only uh, 6% of uh, classical musicians working perform- like uh, with a, um, uh, a, a music degree who have gone on to get a, an orchestra job, 6%. They won't tell you that at day one. They mm. say, yeah come and play come and practice you know so i think and i think 
this was, I guess, obviously a new a new struggle of well, what what is what is what what am I what am I doing like what what do I do you know and um, uh, the desperation to make money to stay in Sydney was something that was just a, a real. You know, so I've got to find teaching. I'm going to do this. I've got to, whatever gigs come along or whatever, because you know, it's just, um, it's just something. And then having to put on the face that it's going okay, you know, because I think Sydney that is something like it's a it's a city that's made up for like success and mm-hmm. like if you're if you're doing okay, uh, apparently you'll be able to live there and go to the beach mm-hmm. and whatever all the time. But if you're not if you're a freelancer and you're not doing okay. Yeah. Oh, good luck because it's, it's and you're dreading social situations yeah. because somebody's going to ask. So, what are you working on? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And it's always about that. Like, what's uh, what's in the works? What's the project coming up? And you're like, oh, um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, <laughs> like, you know, the yeah, working out that uh, you don't want to say that you're you. If I were to tell you that I might have a clean slate week coming up, you know, nothing fucking planned. You know, like that sort of mm-hmm. thing. You know, where you just you know, and then finding the right people that you can say that to, because I think even having testing the waters with some people and saying, "Yeah, I've got to, I'm not doing that much this coming week," and then people that would say, "Oh, yeah, yeah." Anyway, so back to me, and then you just couldn't. You had to find the right people, and I yeah. think it was that maybe some of those situations that made me think about, okay, well, who are the right people? Who are the right people I should hang out with within the music? world that i can talk to about this sort of stuff as well we can bond over our empty calendar yeah (laughs) Yeah, but just uh, any sort of struggle you know because i think it was always about you know like oh so and then always the talk was a lot like where are you going to go overseas what are you going to study because it's Mm -hmm. such a um you know australia being such a small place for that um kind of music and orchestra music in australia is so borrowed from this side of the world um that it's a bit it's a little yeah Europe um, that it's it's a little bit of a strange bag when you Mm -hmm. have someone playing Wagner in in Sydney like it's Mm -hmm. a it it kind of yeah you know you've got waves and seagulls flying by like it's it's a little (laughs) um, but uh, yeah that you're always sort of thinking of somewhere how do I get out of here like not that Sydney because I you know Australia is such a lucky place to live you know and um, but this was also I guess a part of me that was still stuck in the you know, and it's a constant battle being stuck in the music obsession of, oh, got to go somewhere else and see what else there is, you know. My, there's no way my issues will follow me to another yeah. country. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, and um, so, yeah, I stayed in Sydney for another year and a half um, to two years, but that was, a, it was just a strange year of having so like, like sporadic work and then having some real sort of strange times of like not doing a lot. But then a little busier weeks, and they're not doing a lot again. And then working out that I was not a very good music teacher, and then deciding that that uh, that sort of I need to get out of that before I ruin any <laughs> any edu- any uh, um, uh, reputations of schools. <laughs> but um, but um, I think uh, this is something I hadn't touched on. But living living away from home was something that was also. Um, just moving away to study, but then actually never having having not gone back after that study experience. So just that sort of um, distance. Wow, it's from, like you're 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 taking a solitary occupation and making it yeah. even more solitary. Yeah, how far can I go? Yeah, no, well, gonna, the only yeah. way you can make it worse is go to a really northern country in winter, which you've managed to do. So. Yeah. 
Yeah. Well yeah. done. Yeah. I'll, I'll keep trying with the moon. The moon's the next step, so we'll <laughs> see how we go. But um, so, and then I think that's something where I guess this comes back to that always finding someone to understand the idea of doing a music career or doing following any sort of music career and then maybe um, having the... Uh, my parents still trying to work out why am I doing it and like yeah you're doing that thing and it's there's some you're doing some uh, like some things have gone well right and then some things have not gone so well and, and did you to- scream because as a child your love was <laughs> conditional <sighs> yeah look you know and it's it's just a is there is there any truth to that or am I just being <laughs> no, a dick no 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 you're absolutely right all right and uh, but it's it's the you know and then just um in the back of my mind, there was always that escaped fantasy of coming to, to Europe to maybe to see. Well, maybe look, I've got, I've got, to, I've, I'm young enough to try it. We'll see what happens. And I had uh, saved up enough money to make the like one way trip um, to come here. So I guess I've been here a bit over eighteen months, coming up just under two years, and. Um, so yeah, I think. But that the six months leading up to that were just strange months. I think I was just dealing with um, uh, just a variety of different sort of depressive states of not being able to to look at the trombone at all because I just I didn't see much on my schedule coming up and was just didn't really see the point in picking it up. It was just well, you know, like a I, there's this oh well I can go to Europe but not in any time soon and I don't really have the drive to start preparing now. So, what's on TV? Um, you know, like it was always a like a later. I'll do it later. But also hating myself because I knew I was. I was just telling myself, oh, "I'm such a lazy piece of shit." Oh, uh, what a horrible place to be. Yeah, it's it is. Yeah, yeah. And then um, having different flashbacks of different teachers that have given me other various criticisms about <laughs> my playing. You I know. like how you remember all of those, but none of the good shit. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> But I remember, like, um, I had this really great South African um, uh, teacher in Sydney, um, and he would say, like, a really great guy, and actually he was really lucky to have him as a teacher because I think uh, he got it. He got some of the the, the struggles and, you know, he, he, with his sort of path as well, but didn't stop him being any, like, any any less of a, a dick when he, when he wanted to be. And I remember him saying once to me... Um, in this really strong South African accent that I had a bit of shit in my sound. Like when I was playing, so he's like, you've just got a bit of shit in your sound. And I just remember just like not being able to work out how to take that. Cause I remember, cause it was this kind of way of joking as yes. well, but also like a, a, a dig at how yeah. something was sounding in my, in my playing. And I remember just walking out just like, is that, is that like, I sound like shit. Yeah. But like, am I all shit? Is that just like me? Is that like, I, uh, like everything I have, like, how do I get this shit out of my sound? Is that just, a, is there a shit extractor? Wow. And I remember just like, uh, and it, but that's where I look at it. Something like that. I just took me like, it, this was that dialogue in my, in my mind of, of various different mm-hmm. trombone teachers or different conductors that say st- something that sticks with you or that oh, really yeah. gets in the, you know in the groove because uh, i guess being a musician it's i guess it, you know it is sort of comparable to being in a sports team in that you have to sort of stay at the standard you're constantly having to stay at a good standard you can't sort of let it slip and then being told you've let it slip you let the standard slide a bit and then just working out well yeah that's right i'm shit i'm definitely shit you know i knew it 
I guess one of the things that I've always been puzzled about, you know, you hear about classical musicians practicing, you know, 10 hours a day. Yep. I mean, is that like a pretty common thing? Less, it's yeah. Eight hours a Probably, day? I mean, eight is more like a piano player's amount. I mean, like physically... Um, for, for brass players, like it, you have to sort of dial it down a bit because of the the way your muscles work around your your mouth yeah. and actually just holding up the instrument all day. But yeah. more something that you were expected was something like six at least, like a six hour yeah. kind of day. And is that to be improving or to just keep at the level that you're at so that your skills don't diminish? Does it yeah. stay sharp or get better? Or, or depends on the time of the year, but generally improving. You're always looking for that that extra edge. Yeah. Describe to me once you're you're already in a large city orchestra, you're clearly mm-hmm. good yep. at your interest at your uh, instrument. What are you looking? What ways can you be better in those six to eight hours a day mm. that are noticeable by anybody. Yeah, I mean, that's something where, like, you see musicians in, yeah, big orchestras that are still looking for that next big orchestra above that. So they will still commit to the that finding that extra edge of extra, and, like, it's so like what? discernible. Like, what is it? Oh, just a, a new way of playing something, in a, a different musical shape, a shape to a way you're playing it, and ease looking for something that maybe when you're you're playing a particular part of music or pe- uh, a whole piece that your some bits were uh, more difficult than others or tension that you had it in where you were playing looking for ease general ease in the whole I process see. and that um, there must be some other way or a level up where you can achieve that sort of ease but through some sort of slog so that everything yeah. can be second nature yeah 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 and um, yeah it was it's just this looking for yeah just never really and then the um the judgment of musicians who have a position in an orchestra who've decided that yeah sure i've got i'm happy with this position i'm going to have a life mm-hmm. and hearing some of the things that have been said about those musicians that oh they've passed it they've just they're just sort of stagnant stagnating just this talk a lot of um oh ruthless backstabbing like give me some music. give me some examples oh look okay more in um uh um chamber music situations i remember i played in um a trombone quartet and um just um situations like just um you just can't play in tune just can't do it like you just like this person can't play this it's just not playing in tune they're just a little bit out of tune or whatever or just something like that like it's just like you can't, um, you can't that person can't play in yeah, tune yeah yeah like you just can't play like just this obsession with like uh that if you can't do these things right or like this you're not matching us or like some sort of very vague mm-hmm. insult as well but also if the other person was to hear it that's so like how do you interpret that like you're not matching what we're doing like well, what am i doing that's not matching what you're doing like they're not going to point to a passage where yeah, where yeah. somebody was sharp or flat no, or anything no, it's it just a vague vague but that in a way seems to be more sort of hurtful to people because they're yeah. like you're just not doing it right you know and you just like get that sort of like that sort of passive aggression either so yeah the backstabbing or just to somebody's face where you're like yeah you need to just sort out some of your parts and like it's like it's just like saying you literally are not enough yeah that's it that's it it's just like you yeah you just yeah you just and you haven't been enough for quite a while now yeah (laughs) Yeah. just all of you is just it's just not working yeah yeah. (laughs) this whole thing about you being 
upright. It's yeah. just, it was a bad idea. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, and what are you going to do about that? Yeah. You know, like, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah, like that sort of stuff, but also um, just being able to, uh, the inevitable um, personality clashes where somebody would have, um, would, uh, would offer up some advice to somebody else and then just said, uh, as soon as the rehearsal would finish, you'd walk out with that person who received the advice, and then you just hear them say, "Look, they can go and get fucked," you know. Like you can yeah. just like, <laughs> like it's really like so, uh, yeah, like it's just taken in, and then you know, like. But also, this comes back to that lack of communication. So they can't, we can't talk about it, you know, in a proper, um, appropriate way. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to take it in, and then I'm going to sort of bitch about it somewhere else and hold that resentment to somebody else. But, uh, yeah. What percentage of people that become classical musicians professionally do you think were raised in a household where there was any kind of modeling of emotions being expressed in a healthy way or even discussed? Ooh. <laughs> um, very low. Very like I, I just don't know. Like it would be, I, I just I've just had so many discussions with people who I just have uh, brought up that um, like I can't. They, who who have then felt comfortable around me to say that I can't. Uh, I, I I I haven't been able to process some of these uh, feelings or emotions, but in general like it would have to be just i don't know like i don't know a 10 or 20 percent kind of thing as well like it's so low i just really think there's a lot of a lot of and this is about that the the superficial um glaze of what classical music is of like oh you see that front stage and they're all playing and they're all playing together and it's all so glamorous and whatever and you only see that front stage and you don't see the backstage of what's going on. the nervous breakdowns yeah all behind that you know are those pretty common nervous breakdowns um, I guess you don't yeah. know about all of them. Yeah, that's true. I don't know about it. But um, I would say... Uh, Can you uh, hear about famous? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Musicians? Um, that It's like they... Yeah. They were all, mm. or so many of them, were just on a razor's edge yeah. of staying sane. Yep. Yeah. I would really think there'd be there would be a a a, 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 strong, a, a percentage, a, a fair yeah. percentage, I think, because yeah. you know, but that that is covered up by the, all these different coping mechanisms, you know, um, whether it be booze, drugs, sex, you know, um, it's just it, it's a bit just um, funny because people don't think of that when they yep. think of classical musicians, mm. but. Have you ever read or seen the uh, the TV show Mozart in the Jungle? Mm-mm. Have you heard it about good? it? I have heard of it. Yeah, is it good? Uh, it's also sort of a, a bit like the Whiplash situation, as in it's a bit of a take mm-hmm. on the classical music world from a uh, a real life take this time, not like a but a, not wildly a, inaccurate. Yeah, but clo- probably closer. But um, the uh, the author, what was her name? Blair Tyndall, which is an oboe player who played freelancing, oh, freelancing around New York, mm-hmm. and I think we, I've forgotten where she studied, but it was, it's, she just writes about her experience right from the beginning of playing oboe through school and some of her sort of strange infatuations and love things mm-hmm. and stuff and all that, and studying, and then um, uh, her encounters with different famous musicians while she was young and old, like, you know, mm-hmm. and um, uh, different situations that she got herself into, but also just her gradual um, 
sort of uh, slow resentment of classical music over time. So she was in it, in it, and then slowly decided it wasn't for her over mm-hmm. time, but not without some dramatic stuff happening along the way. Okay. And um, but it's some it's those sort of stories where you you know if for someone who is um, entering classical music I guess either just about to study it or they should or, watch it yeah yeah, yeah because yeah. I think uh, it can be so, it can be just can be so superficial that you see that oh yeah I'm just gonna I'm gonna be playing music it's gonna be great mm-hmm. and all this sort of stuff and it's all these nuances of social interactions where you can re- can just just destroy you like the like somebody says one thing and then you take it the wrong way or it's just it's just these te- like specific teachers have spent enough uh, year they've spent enough years with you to work out how you kind of function because you see them not daily but you know every at least once a week um, and they sort of know how to get under your under your grill to and, uh, and working with a vocational person who is uh, professionally uh, mm. brilliant but a fucking monster off stage yeah yeah absolutely and um, yeah and I think I think that's something where like it really was a, uh, it was a real wake up call. I think just um, just to fast forward a little bit to mm-hmm. me living here in Berlin, um, I was living with a, uh, a a another musician who was working as like a student musician in the Berlin Philharmonic. So if uh, anybody doesn't which know, which is the, the creme of the creme, it's right? pretty much one of the one of the creme of the creme in London in would be the other one. Yeah, lo- yeah, London, uh, the Concertgebouw in Amsterdam. Um, oh, we're uh, this. Uh, it's it's kind of the the this sort of the big th- big three or Vienna Philharmonic, mm-hmm. and. Um, amazing musician amazing musician but i've never seen someone who was so self-destructive when he didn't have it in his hands because i would see him 24 7 because i live with him mm-hmm. so i would i would see the other the other sides of him so the um the 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 behaviors where he would lock himself in his room and just do nothing on the weekends and sit around and just binge watch tv shows for for days just would come out to like to get somebody and go back into there like when he wasn't working for Mm -hmm. the week off that he had um but also is this now being classified as self-destructive no no because i (laughs) no no, no. i'm gonna have to use different terminology when i talk to my therapist (laughs) no 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 no. i'm gonna i'm getting to um but just uh he, I, I remember having, um, watching a concert um, that he was playing in and we ended up having a drink behind, um, in the bar of the Philharmonie here. So you can go and sort of have a drink with the other Philharmonic musicians. And then I, I've, it was probably the, the biggest learning curve for me because I, you, you just see that these musicians who are apparently world famous, big, 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 big names in their, in what they do. And you knew who these people yes, were. Absolutely. Yes, absolutely. And, um, and um, uh, you you would see some some interesting stuff going on behind the scenes, like um, like just uh, like strange uh, um, relationships outside their uh, their marriages and stuff mm-hmm. like that within the orchestra and, and things like that, and um, but also the way in which they would interact after the concerts as well. So where you were, you were treated. If you were someone who was just watching, you were treated like a, a bit like a, 
a second rate sort of person and you're like mm-hmm. so what do you do and you're like oh yeah play but like oh but you're not playing with us oh, okay yeah mm-hmm. and, you know and and how to how do i how do i process that you know like so is that what i'm aiming for do i have to be so uh, well am i looking to have my you know like to um uh to be some sort of you know pretentious power elite mm-hmm. in and, and i was there were a lot of uh like just like it was almost an out-of-body experience of looking at some of those situations and thinking is that re- what I really want to be a part of, you know? And then because it was like they were playing great music, but also it didn't necessarily mean they were great people or, you know, like wow, it was just... That, what a great way to put that. Yeah, they were playing but, great music, but that doesn't mean they were great people. Mm, but, um, yeah, I don't know. But that was... That was a wake-up call for you? Yeah, but it also... I think that also put me into various situations here since living in Berlin where different um uh, different types of uh like um like depressive states where i was sort of questioning why am i doing it like mm-hmm. just like well, what's the point why why should i um uh be a part of uh, this sort of uh, this whole deal i mean what's mm-hmm. what's it for you know and um and um then Realizing because I, since moving to Berlin, there was a patch where I didn't see any therapists because I, well, I don't know how it works here. I mean, how do I do? I mean, mm. it was a bit of a gamble. I guess that was the, you know, you're putting, I'm going all in on this decision to come here, see what happens, you know. So it took a bit of time to then sort of reestablish connections and to decide that I needed to start talking again to somebody to work yeah. out, well, what am I actually doing with, you know. Um, and uh, processing a whole bunch of other different situations here like living away from your like from australia so Mm -hmm. also that you know which i I mentioned this before like you know being uh when you're in a different country you're already sort of alienated as it is but like when you're depressed you're it's like a next like and in a different country you know like you just can't the the comfort foods or whatever you like you go into a supermarket here and you just like all you've got is like bread and cheese and that's it you know (laughs) like you know it's it's really hard yeah so you 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 have to find different ways because it's like you you're here for a reason you've come here because you want to have a music career or something like that but also you know you're dealing with stuff and then you know you wonder how you know how do I it's funny yeah. you, you know we don't think twice about somebody going to get a foot massage or something right. else to soothe their feet but you know if you want to soothe your emotions or mm. your soul yeah. or soothe your mind and it's mm. always a little suspect. Oh, what's yeah. the matter? Mm. What's the, you know, what? Are yeah. you cracking? Yeah. <laughs> yeah it's yeah. just like, no, we need to, we need to soothe. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And um, I so think, you started seeing a therapist? Yeah, here. So, which was also um, interesting because you, you're finding an English-speaking therapist, you know, because I came here not really speaking any German, um, was... Also, it's it's hard because I mean in, there are a lot of creative people here as well. So there's also there's a lot of you know there uh, it's not doesn't mean that the the therapists are all pretty busy here. I mean in any city therapists are busy, but it's you know it can be difficult finding one that you then if you've clicked with one person, how do you know you're going to click with another person in a different country right. who is not necessarily a native speaker? Mm-hmm. Um, so that it's hard. I mean you have to sort of then start again. How do I uh, find someone who I can relate to, or someone who is going to, who I think can listen to me, or who can is not going to judge? You know, it goes mm-hmm. back to that. Even though I'd already been told, like I'm not going to, uh, that that this particular person is not going to judge me. 
but you, you, that talk comes back into your head that oh, but I think they're going to judge me if they, mm-hmm. you know. Um, but yeah, and then just here, work has has not been a stable thing all mm-hmm. the time. You know, I've worked freelance on a freelance basis, like I did in Sydney. So you you have situations where you're still questioning, what am I going to be doing um, in six months' time, in a year's time, all of that, and how how do I stay yeah how do I not freak out about the future about the future how do I stay now in the now and and not be so uh, um, obsessed with having to mm-hmm. pick up an instrument and practice because I think I'm not going to be able to you know um, have a roof over my head in a few months time or whatever you know and I think that it, it's just um, yeah and but also I think throughout through those experiences of probably not doing that much you know there's you know, you have that time. Maybe you just get outside, and you just, you just, you, you can. I, I don't know. Maybe that's given me a bit of a chance to practice just being, and just maybe have a bit of a get better at just sitting. Being. You know, yeah, just having a sit and just hanging out. You know, because I think that bubble of the the music school can be so you get stuck in do it. You got to you got to keep going. Got to keep. Mm-hmm. And you're surrounded by people yeah. who are also all buying into yeah. the idea that you have to be moving up, quote unquote, yeah. to be living a good life. Yeah, absolutely. But then just working out that now I can talk with other musicians or fight, like who mm-hmm. who want to talk about this sort of stuff as well, because I think it's just been a, um, a such a long period of time where I just just this bottling down of fear of, of like I'm not going to tell anybody about what I'm really thinking about what my chances are with this mm-hmm. with this type of career because you, you don't want to show the cracks you know I didn't want to show the cracks but now you know it just seems like you know uh, everybody's got that kind of yeah. uh, crack somewhere you know so have you had yeah. some good conversations with fellow musicians yeah well I think this is something you know I think here um because there are so many, I mean, it's it's there are quite a few artists. For, well, it's quite an arty city. There's lots of different mm-hmm. people around who do lots of different f- interesting things. But also, it means maybe the people that you meet um, have a way with words, or maybe the, it's not such a. As I said, well, where I grew up was a little bit more conservative, and mm-hmm. um, and whereas here, you've maybe I've, I felt like I've had a little bit more of a uh, an opportunity to to be more open. Um, with other people, with other musicians, with other people in the arts, about certain struggles that I have, and uh, and continue to have, you know, I think it's something um, that just being able to, yeah, really reach out with people is just something that I'm continually to work, continually working on. I think whether it be music or not in music, you know, and just actually finding out what a pro- appropriate um, communication is with people. I think you know, with whether it be in relationships or friendships or yeah. It's just a... It's yeah. what it's all about. Yeah. You know, it's funny yeah. because the thing that I sought out just as an emergency measure mm. became the very thing that brought purpose into my life. So it's like not only did it put out the fire, but it like helped in all these other areas, mm. in non-emergency areas, yeah. that it brought this calming effect and this mm. sense of meaning and purpose mm-hmm. that I could never get enough of from mm. doing or achieving, mm. but just by being and connecting. It's like yeah. being and connecting, to me, is like 90% of it. If only mm. being and connecting could pay the rent. 
Yeah, absolutely. How fantastic <laughs> would that be? Yeah, I mean, uh, just pull out, you know, uh, one note of being from the wallet of connecting. <laughs> uh, <laughs> oh, I'm late on rent. I'm going to go stare in a field and I'll be back yeah. with the cash. Yeah. <laughs> just that, jingling in a bag, yeah. Is there is there anything else you'd like to uh, to share? Oh, yeah, I think... Um, oh, yeah, I think with just this, uh, I guess, people who are, it doesn't have to be classical musicians, but just musicians, musicians in general, finding the right people to play with and, and, and who, you, it's not just about, um, like, um, the, the end result of a performance. There's so, so, there's something so much more important about the, the whole, the, 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 the connection you have with the people that you're working with as, a, as musicians, not just um, this end product. I think that is um, such a, it can be, can be so obsess, obsessive with any, any genre of music, doesn't matter what you're working on, that can be really um, intense. But yeah, I think yeah, the more people that talk about these, these sort of things, the better, especially in, you know, in something that can be so um, uh, I guess uh, stuck in traditions like cl- classical music. So. And I would imagine if your end goal is to be able to play with more ease, mm. it would make you a better musician, Correct. wouldn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So it's something. Yeah, that it's. I think. Well, actually, this is something I didn't mention, but but also just I think let, just just letting go of not looking about what people what gigs people are doing on social mm-hmm. media and all that sort of stuff because I think we're being so it's so easy to just compare so easy and I just find myself getting sucked into black holes of you know opening up mm-hmm. Facebook to see oh, uh, don't what, do it don't yeah, do it it's just yes. a yeah yeah and I think that's that's something I'm that's probably the only concern I have about young people who are mm-hmm. you know who have grown up with these things um, from you know teenagers now you know to, uh, just having access to all these different social media tools that are you just really uh, I just wonder how people how that will affect people into the future you know not just in music just in general with how people you know think about themselves the compare and despair yeah 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 Hmm. anything else (laughs) no I don't know but we um, covered a lot man yeah (laughs) that was yeah there was uh, I was Hmm. I learned a lot I learned a lot. Yeah, uh, you cool. g- gave me a great, and I hope the listeners as well, a great peek mm. into what it's like behind the, that curtain. Mm. Mm. Yeah, sure. Yeah. Look, yeah, anytime. <laughs> thanks, Ben. No worries. Many, many thanks to uh, to Ben. And Ben actually has a, uh, a podcast where he talks about stuff like this with other creative people. Um, he's doing it in Berlin, and it's called uh, Double Depresso. And I'll put a link to that on our uh, on our website. So yeah, go check that uh, check that out. Um, this episode that you just heard will soon be uh, or are hearing will soon be transcribed and available on our website. And many thanks to Accurate Secretarial for donating their time and helping out the show. Um, speaking of helping out the show, there's a couple of different ways that you guys can help out the show. You can become a monthly. Um, First of all, you can become a, a one-time donor through PayPal, um, or you can become a monthly donor 
through either PayPal or Patreon. I recommend Patreon because it's just a better website and I can give you free content through Patreon. PayPal, there's no way to, to do it. Um, and you, all of that stuff is on our website. You'll see a little, uh, tab that says donate, uh, or support the show and then donate. Uh, but it helps greatly. Uh, this show cannot survive just on advertising. I depend on you guys. Um, and you can become a monthly donor for as little as a uh, dollar a month uh, at Patreon. Uh, you can also help us by uh, using our Amazon portal. If you're going to buy something at Amazon, uh, enter through the Amazon logo on our homepage. And then if you buy something, Amazon will give us some money, but it doesn't make what you're buying any any more expensive. And that all of these things add up. Um, but we definitely, definitely need that help. You can also donate frequent flyer miles, um, which will enable me to go uh, record people outside of the country. Um, it was so nice going to um, uh, the UK and Europe and recording um, non-Americans. Not that I don't like my uh, fellow Americans. Honestly, it was also nice to just get away from... I'm going to be honest, it was just nice to get away from America for two weeks. Um, oh, speaking of uh, uh, financially helping out the show, uh, a sponsor that has really, really helped us um, by consistently advertising on the show is ZipRecruiter. And I got a question for you. Are you hiring? Do you know where to post your job to find the best candidates? Because finding great talent can be tough. Thankfully, with ZipRecruiter, you can post your job to 100 plus job sites with just one click. Then their powerful technology efficiently matches the right people to your job better than anyone else. That's why ZipRecruiter is different. Unlike other job sites, ZipRecruiter doesn't depend on candidates finding you. It finds them. In fact, over 80% of jobs posted on ZipRecruiter get a qualified candidate in just 24 hours. There's no juggling emails or calls to your office. Simply screen, rate, and manage candidates all in one place with ZipRecruiter's easy-to-use dashboard. So find out today why ZipRecruiter has been used by businesses of all sizes to find the most qualified candidates with immediate results. And right now, my listeners, you guys, can post jobs on on, uh, ZipRecruiter for free. That's right, free. Just go to ZipRecruiter.com slash first. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash first. One more time, to try it for free, go to ZipRecruiter.com slash first. Uh, I, I have an email that I got from a listener who asked to be called uh, Ogloff, which I guess is a reference to an internet cartoon. And he writes, I'm just wondering if, in your experience, our mental afflictions can be measured by how many times a stressor um, slash other stimulus occurs. For example, my mom often attempts to manipulate people by seeking compliments. It may seem innocuous, but I am reluctant to supply them as I fear complimenting her will only feed her addiction. Could it be the opposite? The amount of validation, quote, she seeks may eventually be restored or satiated by giving her what she feels she wants. I am not a mental health professional. I don't have a degree. But I did tour comedy clubs 
around the country and had some really terrible experiences and ate some really unhealthy food. So I feel like I am qualified to uh, weigh on weigh in on this. Actually, I remember one time having a meal. It was delicious at Bob Evans. And then I had a, like an eight-hour drive home after my show. And I don't think I have ever been as much pain as I was. It felt like somebody was stabbing my stomach with an ice pick. But I digress. I don't believe. I think this ship has sailed on your mother being able to be externally fulfilled by people complimenting her. Maybe, you know, temporarily for a minute or an hour or a day. Maybe even a week a compliment will help her. But um, I think it has to come from within through intensive work and processing the shit that happened to her as a kid that left her feeling um, so invisible, unworthy, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Just my two cents. And that has been, by the way, the case with me. So, um, you know, because I think when, when we get those messages as a kid through neglect or abuse, the message that gets buried in our heads is you don't matter. And if you have decades of that wired into your brain, somebody saying you look nice in those pants is not going to undo that overnight. Here's something somebody posted on uh, Facebook that I really like, and it's 10 traits um, among truly authentic people. And it's just such a great list. And uh, number one, they are self-reflective. Number two, they are not judgmental. Number three, they live in the present. You know, I would like to add to the number two, they are not judgmental. And if they are, they catch themselves. That way I can weasel my way into the list. Uh, three, they live in the present. Four, they are focused on the lo- long term, uh, which can be confusing because it says while they live in the present, they have a plan for the future. They are focusing on long-term goals and not on the short-term gains they could make by lying to, cheating on, or stealing from others. They invest their time for long-term benefits and do not follow the mercurial crowd of trend chasers. They know who they are and what they want and so make a plan to achieve that in a reasonable amount of time. Because I think it's really easy to think having goals is the same as obsessing about the future. Uh, and those are two completely uh, different uh, things on the healthy spectrum. Uh, number five, they have character. Uh, number six, they listen. Number seven, they are consistent. Uh, number eight, they are honest. Number nine, they respect themselves. And number 10, they are courageous. They have the courage to be themselves and to be true to their ideals, even when those things are not popular. They have the courage of their convictions and the strength to stick to their guns even when the whole world is trying to shoot them down and bend them to their will. Love it. Thank you, um, person that posted that on the Facebook page. This is an email I got from um, a woman who is a, um, well, I'll just read it. She writes, I just finished listening to the podcast with Dr. Natalie Feinblatt. It was nice to hear the clarification of mental health workers and resources available. We talked about the uh, 
differences between a psychologist and a psychiatrist, a licensed marriage and family therapist, etc. I would like to point out that a resource was left out, the psychiatric mental health nurse practitioner. I am a psychiatric mental mental health nurse practitioner. I completed my training at Vanderbilt. (laughs) Slow down, Paul. Nobody's leaving. And if they are, you don't know about it. I completed my training at Vanderbilt University School of Nursing in 2011. Since that time, I have worked in various inpatient, outpatient, and school settings in Alaska and Oregon. I currently work three jobs in Portland, Oregon. I work at a nonprofit agency for Native Americans where I work primarily with children and adolescents. I work two days of the week in private practice with all ages. My oldest patient is 73. And I work a moonlighting weekend position at a local psychiatric hospital. What I have noticed is that many people, maybe most people, outside of the healthcare industry, which includes mental health workers, do not understand the role of the psychiatric nurse practitioner or the training involved in becoming a psychiatric nurse practitioner. In the state of Oregon, I have almost the same scope of practice as a psychiatrist. I am an independent practitioner. The sole difference between a psychiatrist and a nurse practitioner in the state of Oregon is the ability to perform ECT, which is electroconvulsive therapy, i.e. shock therapy. Uh, There is only one hospital, to my knowledge, that provides ECT in Oregon. I would love to hear you interview a nurse practitioner on your podcast. We provide a holistic style of practice for those with mental illness. I was trained... I personally was trained in CBT, DBT, and play therapy through my training at Vanderbilt, in addition to psychopharmacology and medical management. I am reaching out to you today because psychiatric nurse practitioners are frequently forgotten and misunderstood, and I hope that your podcast could help enlighten the general public. Um, As a side note, I have shared your podcast with numerous patients. Thank you for what you do. Thank you for sharing it. Um, this is an email I got from um, uh, somebody who, want, who wants to be referred to as S. And she was sharing that um, her husband deeply loves her um, and that she doesn't know what to do because when she begins to open up to him, he gets a bored, distracted look on his face and has no interest really, in talking about emotions or knowing what's going on with her. And I wrote her back and said, you know, while your husband may love you in some ways, his not taking an interest in you opening up emotionally is the opposite of love. That is a failure on his part as your partner. And while he may not possess the language to talk emotionally, if he truly loves you, he will be willing to go to counseling together to communicate better and develop emotional intimacy. It's the most important part of a relationship, and you deserve to have it, especially since you crave it. That is a healthy need, and him not hearing you is an unhealthy response to your healthy need. This is a shame and secret survey, and this was filled out by a... um, person who identifies uh, somewhere between a female and agender. They are gay in their 20s, raised in a a slightly dysfunctional environment, uh, and they put a gilded cage. Um, 
Ever been the victim of uh, sexual abuse? Uh, some stuff happened, but I don't know if it counts. Ever been physically or emotionally abused? Not sure. My dad threatened to kill me when I was 15 because I was friends with someone he didn't like. I, lo- I love that the two words, not sure, are followed by the five words, my dad threatened to kill me. Or is it six words? I don't know. <clears throat> other than that, <laughs> other than that, how was the play, Mrs. Lincoln? Um, other than and opening all my letters and checking my school emails and kind of interrogating me regularly about those, which I guess is unhealthy. He's a pretty chill dude. My family is also really unhealthy. I'm my mother's therapist, best friend, subordinate, and she kind of needs me to be around a lot. And I know that's not really abuse, but it feels damaging and uncomfortable. Like I don't really exist except as an extension of my parents. So that's probably bad parenting on their part. That is bad parenting on their part. And in my opinion, that is also abuse. That is absolutely abuse. You're ignoring your child's. Now, the fact that they are ignorant doesn't mean that that's not still abuse because it's not about blaming them. It's about identifying what you are or aren't getting in your life and how you are going to go about healing that and changing that in the future. Um, not to be confused with changing them. Darkest Secrets, I watch straight porn because I need to dissociate a little bit to be able to masturbate, and I would never have sex with a man, so it's easier to not emphasize with, um, then she puts this in in caps, um, generic white porn star uh, number 32178. That, that, that is actually my favorite generic white porn, porn star. Um, when they're playing uh, at kind of awful rapey stuff, which I hate and feel kind of triggered by, but it's the only thing I can get off to. Speaking of triggers, Thomas the Tank Engine is one of mine. I don't know why, but my gut feeling says child sexual abuse. Before I realized I was a lesbian, I was kind of manipulated. I wasn't romantically attracted to him, but he was to me, and I felt like I had to force myself into believing I reciprocated. I was forced, kind of manipulated, into a really intense online relationship with a guy who probably needed me. He was living in the United Arab Emirates and didn't have access to proper psychiatric or therapeutic treatment. Um... I left that relationship and he killed himself, and although I know I'm supposed to understand it wasn't my fault, that one was totally my fault. That was totally not your fault. Totally not your fault. Um, Sexual fantasies. uh, I hate talking about sexual fantasies and would probably get myself a clitoridectomy if I could, but I'm really into awful, awful rape but where the girl feels pleasure shit i know it's probably a result of trauma i hate myself anyway what if anything would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to number one family i'm a fucking lesbian and yes that does mean i am likely going to hell but you don't need to bring hell to me while i'm still alive number two p i used to be in love with you and that's the the initial p not the 
liquid pee. I used to be in love with you and probably still am, question mark, but like, don't worry about it. I'm in no state to try and convince you to reciprocate. Three, don't pay attention to me, but please pay attention to me from a safe distance. That is so fantastic. Uh, What, if anything, do you wish for? I want to feel in control of myself and my life. I want to feel like I'm being respected as a person. I wish I could set boundaries with people. I wish I was slim and attractive. How do you feel after writing these things down? Slightly relieved, but also very pathetic. Um, If you haven't yet listened to the uh, episode with uh, Dr. Feinblatt about codependence, um, I think that would be a good one for, if you're listening, uh, a a good one for you to listen to because uh, codependence is all about uh, struggles with boundaries. And um, something else I wanted to say, but I can't remember what it was. What was it? I hate that. I hate that. I, it was just right there in my brain. And, uh, oh, I know what it was. Uh, you know, she wrote, uh, don't pay attention to me, but please pay attention to me. Um, somebody, I wish I knew who it was that said this recently. Um, but they said, uh, the phrase, come over here and leave me alone. And it's like, oh my God, yes, that's it. That's one of the reasons I love going to my favorite coffee place to work is because I love having people around me leaving me alone. It's like the perfect, it's it's the middle, it's the middle Goldilocks bed for me socially. Isn't Goldilocks the one with the uh, the bed? One bed's too hard, one bed's too soft. This is an email I got um, from a, uh, it says Buffett Warren uh, .01. And I got to assume that this is the Warren Buffett because, well, I'm just going to read it. I hope this information Meet you well, as I know you will be curious to know why slash how I selected you to receive a cash sum of five, and then there's like a shitload of zeros, um, and there's a bunch of commas, and I, and there's no period before the last two zeros. There's a comma before the last two zeros, so I don't know if Warren Buffett wants to give me. Five million dollars or five hundred million dollars, and because one is a dream come true and the other is a slap in the face. But I want your guys' take on this. Uh, he writes, Our inf- information below is 100% legitimate, um, and that is a relief. That is a relief, um, because a lot of times somebody will write. Our information below is 72% legitimate, and I'll be torn. I'd be like, I, then it's up to me to find where that 28% horse shit is, and that's a lot of work. He writes, my wife and I decided to donate the sum of five and then all those zeros to you as part of our charity project to improve the lot of 10 lucky individuals all over the world from our 12 billion US dollars, I and my wife mapped out 
to help people before she died. We prayed and searched over the internet for assistance because I saw your profile on Microsoft email owners list and picked you. I didn't know that I was on uh, Microsoft email owners list. Susan, my wife, and I have decided to make sure this is put on the internet for the world to see. My wife has cancer, and she died at Colchester Regional Hospital. My wife just didn't die, but she has a great person. She was a great person, um, and I miss her so much. Um, I think it's important that, that he said my wife just didn't die, but she was a great person, because sometimes people do just die, and then there's just a shrug, and that's always awkward. Um, I miss her so much, and this is why I've decided to do one thing I promised her forever. As you could see from the web page above, I am not getting any younger, and you can imagine having not much time to live, although I am a billionaire investor. Um, I gotta be honest, 10 years ago, when I saw your picture, I thought, he's not getting any younger. Actually, when I see anybody, I realize they're not getting any younger. But let's not let's not nitpick about this. We have kept just 40% of the entire sum to ourselves for the remaining days because I am sick and I'm writing to you from hospital computer because I don't know when I will die. What kind of a world do we live in when Warren Buffett has to borrow the hospital's computer to give me either $500 million or $5 million. And then he asks for all of my personal information so that I can forward your payment information immediately. Um, I'm hoping you will be able to use the money wisely and judiciously over there in your country. Well, over here in my country... Um, which I thought you lived in, hmm? Uh, I don't. I don't use money judiciously. What I usually do is I immediately go to Beverly Hills and I try to spend all of the money that I have on one single hat that glitters as much as possible. And I got to say, if I wind up getting this $500 million dollars, I don't know if I can get that in one hat. But I'm listen. He ends by writing, I like to reassure you of the legitimacy of this services as we will not be involved in any fraudulent act and will never be. That just means a lot to me that he's mapped out his moral future and shared that with me. But um, I don't know if I can... I don't know if I can take him up on that. Where am I going to put it? That might have been the longest, most drawn out spam bit I've ever done. This is a shame and secret survey filled out by, um, I'm just going to read two things from this. This is filled out by a female uh, who's 16, uh, straight, raised in a slightly dysfunctional environment. Um, she calls herself, uh, my mind is running a hundred miles per hour and I can't seem to catch up. 
Uh, have you ever been emotionally or physically abused? Uh, she writes that she has been both. And I wanted to read this because this is such classic religiosity on the part of her parents. And I see this over and over and over again where people take their own issues and funnel it through religion to punish somebody innocent. And she writes, My father has always been an incredibly violent person. From a young age, I've been exposed to his temperament and have had to endure years of physical and emotional abuse. One moderate example of his unreasonable anger happened on a Sunday morning. Being raised in a devoutly Christian home, we attended church every weekend. Um, and by the way, wouldn't it be great if there was a term for people who called themselves devoutly Christian but were actually uh, abusive hypocrites? Um, and I'm not talking about the girl. I'm talking about the parents. But um, wouldn't it be nice being raised in an absurdly hypocritical Christian home? Uh, we attended church every weekend. I remember an argument that I was having with my mother on that particular Sunday. She was scolding me on my apparel. I was wearing jeans and a nice blue plaid button-up shirt. My parents, being very traditional, were convinced that that outfit was not appropriate for an 11-year-old girl. Uh, she continued to yell at me and ordered me to change myself into a dress. I was adamant and became irritated very quickly. I told my mother she was not going to make me wear a dress. As soon as my father became aware of the disagreement, he walked up to me, sternly stared at me for a few seconds, and struck me in the face. All I could feel was my cold body in shock. Here, I was an 11-year-old being punched in the face by a 35-year-old adult. The room was silent, and following the silence was the sound of my blood making contact with the floor. He walked away. Behind him was my eight-year-old sister looking at me. She had a facial expression that I still remember. She was trembling. As I saw her face, I knew I had to protect her from any situation that could cause her any sort of trauma. I wiped, wiped away my blood and walked her to her room and assured her I was okay. My mother stayed in the room and continued to iron my father's church pants. To this day, I feel that I was partially responsible because I feel that I could have avoided the occurrence if I had just worn that stupid dress. The other thing that strikes me is how naturally the victims go to the place of blaming themselves how you went to the place of taking care. It's amazing how we abandon ourselves in that moment. And I suppose because as children, we were trapped. And it seems probably less futile to that child to go comfort her sister and tell her that everything's okay or to blame herself for talking back. Instead of saying, what kind of a fucking monster bloodies his child's nose? over clothing and the irony clothing for church uh, any positive experiences with the abusers there were occasions where my father would show his love for me 
He would often tell me, you know I love you, right? He would hug me, but they often felt forced. I feel that this was a result of his lack of emotional contact with my grandma. I believe this because he does it every time he speaks about his childhood and how much rancor he has towards my grandma, sometimes after a conversation on the phone with her. He would also make sure that my sister and I have all the necessary supplies to succeed in school. As a child, I would convince myself that I needed to achieve all the dreams he had for me to gain his love, but now I feel that I need to achieve all my dreams to love myself. I don't know if I will ever get there, but I can only hope. I hope that you can get to a place where you can love yourself without having to achieve anything, without having to impress anyone, by just being you and just recognizing that you are awesome as you are. You know, could all, could any of us improve in certain ways? Of course, we could all improve in certain ways. But that doesn't mean there isn't an authentic, beautiful, lovable person inside of us. Your father has that inside of him, but it's so covered up by all of his issues um, that he can't access that. And you sound like an emotionally curious person, and I think you've been given a gift at 16 years old to have a desire. You've begun to see the sanity you know, the insanity, which is a part of breaking the cycle. And I was just really touched by your survey and, and disturbed, frankly, um, that there's violence around what you wear to church. I mean, just soak that in. Soak that in. That is like... That's top five fucked up. This is a shame and secret survey filled out by a guy who calls himself Closet Party. And he is straight in his 20s, raised in a pretty dysfunctional environment. And I'm also just going to read part of his, his survey. Uh, ever been the victim of sexual abuse? Uh, yes, and I never reported it. I was sexually abused by my baby, babysitter over a period of about three years from the ages of seven to ten. She was a teenager at the time. It went as far as oral sex, but never intercourse. At the time, I enjoyed it, and I never thought it affected me, but now looking at the mess my life is becoming, I'm starting to think otherwise. Uh, he's been physically and emotionally abused, horribly bullied uh, as a kid for being overweight. Um, he describes a scene that is like out of a movie where everybody in class is throwing their candy at him and saying, eat it, eat it up, fat ass. Um, my mother physically and emotionally abused my brother and me, the worst of it starting when my parents divorced when I was seven. She would often spank us super hard or hit us all over our bodies with a wooden spoon. A lot of times she would use closed fists, which would leave bruises or sometimes cause us to bleed. The worst instance that I remember is when I was playing with toy cars or something at the top of the stairs, making a lot of noise, of course. My mom was on the phone and without breaking the conversation or changing her expression, she came over and kicked me in the face so hard it sent me spiraling down the, sprawling down the stairs and left me with a bloody nose. I remember crying and crawling back to the top of the stairs, and she was just on the phone laughing with her friend like nothing happened. 
The abuse stopped when I was 12 or so because I kicked that bitch in the gut and left her there crying on my bedroom floor the last time she tried to attack me. Any positive experiences with the abusers? There's no excuse for my mom and the other abusers in my life, but I'm not an idiot and I can at least understand the context of the abuse. My mom had just gone through a divorce, being abandoned by my father with not much money to raise two admittedly terrible and overactive boys, and that's when the real abuse started. I hate, though, that you use the word terrible. You know, overactive, yeah, but terrible, you know, that that sounds like a message that that abuse has pounded into your into your head. Um, uh, I can't imagine the stress and her own personal emotional state for those first few years until we got on our feet. I can also understand that really my sexual abuser was also a kid. She was a teenager and she should still have known better, but I don't really blame her or hold it against her. I also remember sometimes begging her to do it and her genuinely not wanting to, but then just giving in because I wouldn't shut up. I do suffer from anxiety and depression, and there was a suicide attempt in college, but when I think about these events from my past, I don't necessarily feel any immediate pain or sadness, and I feel like I've come to terms with them. On the other hand, I have such deep self-esteem issues that I feel they must have really affected me on a deeper subconscious level. I no longer have a relationship with the sitters or anyone that bullied me, but I do now have a surprisingly good relationship with my mom. I even learned, I even leaned on her emotionally a lot recently, and she's been a great listener and gives good advice. She's never exhibited that sort of behavior since my teenage years, and she's gone out of her way to be welcoming to my wife, uh, who's an immigrant, and to show love to my son. We practically have to beg her not to visit us so much because she just loves him so much. I know I should hate her for all she did, and we haven't talked about it, but I don't really care, and I'm enjoying having a good relationship with her. I'm not sure if that's healthy or sick. Thank you for sharing that. It's amazing how complicated shit can be. And, you know, just keep listening to your gut. Keep listening to your gut. I think that when the shoulds and the coulds and all that start plaguing us, that's usually when I think we stop listening to our to our gut. This is an awful moment filled out by duped by bunny poop, then dumped by you too. And he writes, I'm a new listener to your show and have such an appreciation for it. I am noticing myself reaching out to others empathetically and have been making connections with others that I previously was too nervous to try. Thank you for that. One such connection was last night with my Uber driver. Making the usual Uber talk, I discovered that he did not complete university because he had a very traumatic event that spun him into a two-year, very dark and incapacitating depression. He was now about 24 years old. Because of listening to your show, I was able to connect with him and gently keep the conversation going in order to let him know that he is not alone and how amazing his support system of family and friends were as they basically scraped him off the ground and loved him back to health. I was generous with my own fucked up information and I feel like that helped some of the walls to come down too and acted like a fertilizer on a very meaningful moment with me and another human being. Upon reaching my destination, he said, Oh, a strip club? I thought you were a Christian. Thank you for that. 
This is a shame and secret survey filled out by a woman who calls herself uh, almost free. And she is straight in her 30s, raised in a pretty dysfunctional environment. Uh, ever been the victim of sexual abuse? Yes, and I never reported it. Uh, my mother, a middle school teacher, uh, molested me until I was about seven or eight. I remember kicking her in the chest and saying, bitch, if you ever touch me like that again, I'll kill you. Um, that's interesting how many similarities there are in the um, in the surveys that I read this week because they were practically uh, back-to-back, um, you know, maybe one or two in between these. But um, anyway, continuing. Uh, I didn't discover until I had my own daughter that there was much more damage that was done. For example, I taught my daughter to wash herself at two years old because I would tremble and shake at the thought of giving my own daughter a bath. Just the tip of the iceberg. There were always, quote, issues with my privates where she would, quote, have to apply various creams herself. By the way, um, if you are listening to this episode, um, feel free to contact me. I know of a support group for people who have experienced almost the exact same thing that you are describing, and they've found a lot of healing and kinship in connecting to those other people um, who were sexually abused by their mother. Uh, and what you described, the cream, you know, you, excuses to use uh, apply creams, that's like a big one. That's like one of the most popular ones of mothers that sexually abuse um, their daughters. And the other one is um, calling them into the bathroom when the mom is in there, uh, walking around the house naked despite the child being uncomfortable with it, and invading the child's privacy when they are in the bathroom or changing, um, d- despite knowing that that child doesn't want that. Um My daughter was able to wash herself on her own at three, and there were not many times that I had to do this, maybe about five since she was born. Um, Oh, I think she's talking about putting cream on. I'd use a Q-tip and tremble. I realized that I still have plenty of work to do. Having a daughter and going through various stages um, makes me aware of how sick my mom was. I'm glad I went to therapy up until I gave birth and some therapy after to learn how to not pass these issues onto my daughter, but to this day... I still get pissed. She died right before I started back at college. Um, She was sick for a long time. This is the same person who told her own daughter, knowing I had a high IQ, that I wasn't smart enough for college and should just get a good job. Who does that? She was a teacher who helped former students of hers go to college. Um... She's been physically and emotionally abused. After standing up to my mother, which meant me staying up all night that night with a knife in my bed, it was verbal put-downs and knock-down fights until I left the house and even after. When I was younger, I didn't fight back, but after a few years, I said, what do I have to lose and would fight her back as hard as I could. I literally worked out and weight trained so I could kick her ass. She'd punch me in the face for putting too much soap in the sink to wash dishes. She'd pull my hair so hard in front of my friends that I couldn't even brush it. Why? Who knows? To this day, my temper is unmanaged. I've learned to let a lot of things go and process them, but I cannot deal with anyone that's manipulative or negative. I immediately go into survival mode and can very nicely cut them deeply with my words. 
Now I try to leave the situation if I feel myself getting that way. I left my last job because my boss reminded me so much of my mother that I couldn't deal with it. I went to the ER with chest pains while working for that lady. My first experience of a full-blown anxiety attack. Any positive experiences with the abuser? She was a single mother. My dad left when I was about five or six, but she managed to see me every week. I have a few stepmothers uh, that were more motherly to me than my own mother. I don't really know any good things because to me, they were always around other people. They were fake to me. If she tried to give me a hug, I'd ask if she was dying. When she did die, she laid on my shoulder. The most creepiest moment in my life. I wanted to shrug her off. I'm glad she's dead. Darkest thoughts. I wish my mother died earlier. I wish she died when I was under 18, so I might have had a shot at a normal life. Maybe stay with my dad and my stepmom at the time. Wouldn't have mattered where I stayed, just not with her. I did as much as I could around other families that my mom left me with so they could like me, hoping someone would take me. But she literally had everyone fooled. Some of her students' parents would let their daughters stay over for the weekend. Bad idea. I always slept on the couch when they were over. Uh, but I had my own room with bunk beds. I can't bring myself to really go there, uh, but just yet, it's still to really go there just yet, but it's sick and creepy. Did I mention I was happy she's gone? It's only been three years since she died, but I must say these are the best years of my life. Darkest Secrets. I would put soap in her food. I'd just watch her get sick. Then, when she needed help, I'd act like she didn't exist. A little payback for her waking me up in the middle of the night uh, when she got home at about 1 a.m. on a school night with punches in my chest to go wash a bowl and spoon out in the sink, then punching me because I used too much soap. Sexual fantasies most powerful to you. I don't have any big fantasies. It's kind of sad, but my fantasy is a loving man that's kind to me and my daughter. That's literally it. That is not sad at all. That's beautiful. What if anything would you like to say to someone? I would like to... I would have loved to ask my dad if he wanted me to stay over his house that night that he died. I would have been there to call 911 earlier. He died of a heart attack. Maybe it could have been prevented? Question mark. I spent the evening with him. I spent the evening with him and left early to go home. What if anything do you wish for? I wish for me to be sober and mentally healthy. I have not had much experience with these things in my life. I want to be the best mom I can be to finally attract a healthy relationship. Um, have you shared these things with others? I have a close friend. She's okay with me sharing because she grew up with me. Another close friend that I told about the molestation wasn't comfortable with it. I've learned to keep things to myself. How do you feel after writing these things down? I've kept a journal since I was about 12. It saved me. I always make sure to keep an open notebook. I write in it, whatever, I write in it whenever I feel like it. I feel comfort in knowing that I have pages to write on. If I get to the last page, I immediately go out and get another book, even if I don't write in it for a long time. Uh, anything you'd like to share with someone who shares your thoughts or experiences? I've listened to a few podcasts on here about people who have been in my same situation. The anger is real, and there is no rule that says you can't be happy that someone that hurt you dies. 
Also, the part about these people being very involved in the community or people that others would say, I've never, I would never think that he or she would ever do that. They do and they will. Thank you so much for, for filling that out. And I am so sorry. I am so sorry that you had to go through that. That is, I mean, how unsafe the world must feel to you. And I, if sobriety is a problem for you, I highly, highly encourage you to address that first because it is so hard to make any kind of emotional headway when we're deep into our addictions. But sending you some love. This is a happy moment filled out by Volatile Violet. She writes, Recently I've been making friends with two people from work. I can't believe we found each other. Each of us has a parent with both BPD and bipolar disorder. BPD is a borderline personality disorder. It's incredible to talk to the two of them about all my shit. They are probably the first people I've met who can actually understand what I've been dealing with. I've tried to talk about my issues with other friends And I've always felt like I was making them uncomfortable. With these two friends, we can commiserate and say, yes, I know what that feels like. That's fucked up. Thank you for that. Those are the little moments, like like she just described, that sustain me. Like when I'm going through a tough time, just that simple connection with somebody that understands and I know is really hearing me, seeing me, feeling me. Um, this is, you know what, I'm not going to read this one, but this is another, another one that was filled out this week. Um, and this is a, I can't remember if it's a guy or a girl, a a girl, a woman who was, uh, also molested by a babysitter and, um, she's in her forties now. Um, You can see why I get so angry when there's something on TV or in the media um, referring to uh, sexual abusers as if they're all male or people minimizing the effect that something has on someone if the perpetrator is female. This is the last one. This is a... um, this might be uh, one of my favorite awfulsome moments. And this is filled out by a guy who calls himself Finger Blast from the Past. Um, and he writes, OCD had plagued me throughout high school, but I only got my diagnosis during my first year at college. I had decided to stop eating because I was so afraid of contamination. I am one of the lucky few people who have a great support system. I had a happy childhood with loving parents and a best friend who cares deeply about me. They saw me through terrible times, packing me up from college, forcing me to go to the psychiatrist to get medication and forcing me to take it, even though I thought it was contaminated, and driving me to CBT and support groups. It took eight months of intense work, but I was finally starting to get better. To celebrate and expose me to another healthy level of fear, my parents wanted to take me and my best friend to the family cottage. I'd avoided going for years because it was essentially a shack with no running water. Torture 
for someone suffering from contamination OCD, but I loved that damn cottage when I was a kid and I felt ready to push myself to go. During my recovery, I was also able to support my best friend as he came out of the closet. We're from Louisiana, so this wasn't easy for him. His daddy still doesn't speak to him today, seven years later. We became really close that year. I could tell he had feelings for me, and although I considered myself straight, my love for him was so strong that the boundaries became a little blurred in my mind. I'd been so miserable for so long, so I figured I owed it to myself and to him to see if there was something there. I was ready to live my life. I decided that the week away was the perfect time to make a move. The first night there, we went for a walk and I kissed him. It felt right, and he was so happy that it made me even happier. A few more days passed where we would kiss whenever we had a quiet moment together. Things were picking up, and when my parents told us that they were fixing to go fishing, I knew what was going to happen. They left, and we really started going at it. I was midway through giving my first blowjob ever when my daddy walked in. He walked straight back out the door. When he finally came home, oh, and didn't come home for hours, I was losing my damn mind and my best friend was trying to comfort me. When he finally came home, I couldn't even look him in the eye. He asked me to go for a walk with him and my mama asked my friend to clean fish for dinner with her. We started walking and why my Louisiana born and raised daddy said these exact words. I got three things to say to you, son. First thing, I love you just the way you are. Second thing, I told your mama, and she loves you just the way you are. Last thing, boy, if you're doing that, I know you are over with this contamination obsession, and I'm really proud of you. That's right. I got caught having sex with another man, and my daddy told me he was proud of me. It was the best damn day of my life. And I think that is the best awfulsome moment we have had in however many years we've been doing those. So thank you so much for that. Uh, thank you guys again for your support in uh, just the night's letters and our emails and uh, posts on um Twitter and Facebook and stuff like that. It's, it's, um, it just feels good. It feels good. And, um, I hope you heard something in this episode that brought you comfort or turned on a light bulb for you or just distracted you or helped you fall asleep. Um, and never forget that you are not alone. And thanks for listening. Everybody I know is bizarrely beautifully Everybody fucked up I in some weird way. Bizarrely beautifully Everybody fucked up in some weird way. Bizarrely beautifully Everybody fucked up in some weird way.